0: All right, so we've got an ex-police officer who's never told his story before like this. Friend of John Wedger, so shout out to John Wedger for hooking this up. And it is a harrowing story arc. You've heard many of our interviews with the cops. You know, they join for the right reasons, but then the bureaucracy, the corruption kicks in. And they put their lives on the line there's a lot of trauma a lot of PTSD and at the end you know there's there's some pretty dark outcomes and this story is no exception so huge thank you for Tony for coming in and sharing this with us because yeah. it's it's a lot to uh, relive and before you got in the police what was your life like
1: um, i had uh, various uh, jobs sales jobs um, you know but my number one game was to join the police force you know, since I was a young age, um it just appealed to me. Um and that's all I wanted to do. Yeah, you know, since I was little. It was myself either be a professional footballer um or be a police officer.
0: And did you were you idealistic or did you understand how hard hitting it is?
1: The police, um I think years ago was it's completely different to what it is now. Um had I known now, um, in hindsight, it's easy to say, but there's no way. And I wouldn't recommend anybody to uh, join the police force now, with, especially what I've gone through personally. Um, but when you look at other officers around the country, um, I feel sorry for them. And these new recruits, um, I don't know if you're aware, there's a massive people a large amount of people, sorry, who's joining the police forces. And within a couple of months, years, they're just um, resigning. It's not for them. They're seeing what it is. Um, I think it's a lot to do with the government. Um, When I was trying to join the police... um, yeah, I was going
0: to ask, what was it like for you as a new recruit?
1: I was brilliant. It was... I'll tell you, I got in the police because I was so desperate. um, I became a special constable. And um, like I said, I was always good at football. And I remember one boy in um, Canton Police Station, he heard that obviously I was good at football. Um, And he invited me to go down to play football for the South Wales Police football team. And I don't think there's been ever any special constables playing football for the uh, South Wales Police Force. Uh, Like their rugby, they were well-known. They were a good force, rugby and football um, and I can remember going down there. I'm um, a training session, and I remember then they put me number nine centre forward straight away, which was I, I was a bit shocked. Um, and I can remember a couple of the regular police officers coming up to me behind the manager's backs and saying, "I can't believe they've picked you. You're only a special." But because I've always had a little bit of um, not attitude, but switched on. I said, well, they've only picked me because I'm better than you. And, you know, they'd look back. (laughs) And I played for the force um, throughout that season. And I remember one game down Wharton Cross headquarters, um, some superintendent came up to me and he said, Tony, can I have a word? So uh, he invited me. He said, have you applied to join the police force? I said, well, yeah, I did. I said, but I got refused. He said, can you put a form in on Monday? And from that time, my application just sailed through and uh, I was in. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, it was my football skills that got me into that uh, job. And I've played for the force ever since, you know.
0: What basis did they refuse you initially?
1: Um, South Wales Police was one of the hardest forces to um, be recruited um, outside. You know, a lot of people from South Wales, they used to go up to the Metropolitan Police because obviously larger force. They go in there, they get recruited, they do their probation, and it was well known they'd uh, turn around and um, transfer them back to South Wales because they couldn't get in South Wales, police. It was so hard. Right. So,
0: how old were you when you went in, and what was your
1: training like? Um, I went in, I was 30, 30 years or 31. Um, I remember the training, we went up to Hendon, and I thought, oh no, we're going up to Hendon. And at that time, I can remember we were in the old blue shirts um and i remember turning up in hendon and it was leicestershire sussex devon and cornwall thames valley and ourself um we were all split up and we were told to get change in our police uniforms i remember turning up in this big hall and we're looking at our uniforms yeah we're from wales we still got the blue shirts and everyone sort of looking because they've got the nice uniform white shirts and uh yeah. But i got to say, Hendon was fantastic. The facilities, everything, really enjoyed it. It was hard, but um, the facilities up there were second to none. Really enjoyed it.
0: So did you have to do a lot of physical training?
1: Yeah, they, which, again, I was into my football. Um, I was very, very fit. Um, that didn't bother me at all. I More training, the better for me, really. I remember, as well, up in Hendon, there was, like, two large tower blocks, and... After the classes, uh, we used to play rugby in the, the field below and used to get all the other um, different officers from the other uh, forces and we'd invite them down. We'd say, you know, you're going to come down and play rugby. They said, we're not playing with you, lads from Wales. Uh, we're going to get injured. And it like, but he was like second to none. But no, he was brilliant.
0: So ace the physical side. What was your first assignment then? Where did you go?
1: Um, I was posted to, it was a high student area in Cates in Cardiff. Um, Lots of students there. Um, I was there for, I think, about six months. Um, And then I was transferred then to another part of Cardiff, uh, Roth Police Station. And at that time, that was the busiest sector in the whole Wales police force. Uh, For calls, it was call to call to call. It was manic, and you know, I'm not saying I'm the brightest. There was other people um, who joined the job who were very switched on. Passed exams easy. When we used to go back to have uh, refresher training, you'd see like I was up there because they hadn't dealt with like deaths and you know stabbings and things like that but where I was working at that time it was that was a norm you never knew what you were gonna come against
0: yes a lot of the ex-cops we interviewed tell us right away they have to attend an autopsy some have said they could never do it again some have said they did 10 20 of them yeah you know it didn't bother them um, or they kind of suppressed it at least how did you find going into an autopsy
1: um, me myself, I never done one.
0: You never did one. No,
1: uh, I don't know why. I know I can remember in our training they said you'd have to do it, but I think um, at that time it sort of you, you didn't have to do it. But where we were working, we had the Cardiff CRI Royal Infirmary. It was right on our patch, so you'd see dead bodies all the time or people with accidents coming in. It was the norm. And, do you remember um, your first one? Um. Not my first one. I can remember, you know, I I can give you loads of specifics. A guy who's been, he was involved in um, drugs. Uh, It was uh, in the afternoon. He'd been sliced everywhere. And that sticks in my mind a little bit. You just see blood spurting everywhere. He was high himself and um, trying to calm him down um you're thinking is he and things like that and um that was all drug related um that that sticks with me but at the time I think a lot of police officers will say I think the adrenaline kicks in so you're on override anyway um the th- I think the main thing which I didn't like would be things with um children you know that that's a touching thing I um you know um, anything if they've been injured abused things like that um, I, I could tell you loads of things with that which stick with me what were the first cases of that you encountered I remember going to a call um, it was this little girl she was about three years old um, it was about midnight and it was when these Motorola the big brick phones came out and she'd phone 999 and the Ops room said she's just phoned us, she's three years old. Um, she can't wake her mother up, so obviously, me and my partner went down and um, we're there just before the ambulance. As we kicked the door in, they had this massive Staffordshire Bull Terrier which was on springs. So I said to Steve, I said, put the dog out the back. So, with that, the paramedics turned up and this little girl and my my I had two girls then, they were like two and four and um, so I can relate to the little girl and um, the paramedics went upstairs so um, they called me I stuck my head up and I went she's dead so uh, I thought oh so that upset me so I put the little girl in the police car I drove to the garage um, bought her some sweets took her to the uh, police station and on the way I said well where's your daddy? oh, my daddy's in hospital, he's um, he, he's broke his back. So anyway, it transpired he hadn't broke his back. He was in prison for obviously uh, drug-related. And I said to the girl, I said, well, what happened? She said, oh, well, I was cold. She said, and I climbed in mummy's bedroom. I went, went into her bed and um, she was cold. So I tried to wake her up. And then what upset me, she said, so I got my little finger, put it on her nose, and her nose was cold. And I thought, she said, so I got the phone and dialed 999. And I thought, well, what a bright little girl at that age to do 999. I don't think my children would have been uh, capable. And um, anyway, it transpired. We were on double back coming back. And I found out the father was in hospital and mother had taken a drug overdose. This little three-year-old was uh, in the house. And I was even contemplating, thinking about, you know, adopting herself. That's how much it affected me. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's one experience. But I know the family then from Ireland were coming over to take her because part of the other family who lived in Cardiff, they weren't, or oh, I don't think social services had let them take her anyway. But, yeah, th- you know, things like that. I've been to, I've been in on traffic. Uh, you've gone to loads of accidents. We've seen bones and flesh hanging out. And, you know, and um, I recall another time there was a Hyundai car. Um, and the son had taken it without his uh, parents' consent, showing off with his mates and his girlfriend in the car, speeding around the corner, hit the bollards, upside down, and he was squashed, brain damaged oh. and things like that. So, yeah, yeah, but I think at the time, I think it's the adrenaline gets you through, and that is part of the job. And as soon as you attend the scene, yeah, you, you look at these things, flesh hanging out and things like that, but... You think, right? What have I got to do, and who have I got to contact, etc.? And I, I think it's only after then, and that's where a lot of the PTSD comes into it, where a lot of these officers are dealing with loads of nasty things, and I don't think the public realise, um, you know, how many things and nasty things, and it, it it might not affect you then, but it's later on. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, there's loads. So your first few years, what were your biggest challenges? Um, I think my first few years, big challenges, I, I can remember it was obviously learning your skills, your proper law. And you do think, don't, sorry, you'll never learn all this. Um, but then all of a sudden it clicks and that's where the confidence comes in of you being a police officer. And, um, Everywhere where I've worked, Enroth, and Station, on a community, wherever I've worked, um, I've always had the highest arrest rate. Um, I remember my friend who was a superintendent and we used to socialise quite a bit and um, he's working out in Switzerland now for UEFA. I remember seeing him regularly say, your name, Tony, come up on uh, tasking this morning. Um, Because when I left... um, I went up to Lannishen, which is a bigger area, but it wasn't as busy as Roth, And it gave you time to do your proper policing where you stop checking things. I can remember one day, four o'clock in the morning, uh, we had a bit of intelligence and I stopped this silver car. Blacked out windows and I was with a young female probationer. And as I stopped it, as an experienced copper, you know you get that gut feeling. And a window came down and there was these two big black guys in there, and they had a Birmingham accent. So you're thinking, well, what are they doing down here? Nice area of Cardiff, and um, four o'clock in the morning. So I think your police skills come into it. You, you've got that gut feeling. So, you know, you talk them tidy. You say, you know, okay, whatever you've been, can I just do a check on, uh, on yourself and a vehicle? You go insurance, yeah, well, just sit in the back of the van. I'll take your details, you'll be on your way. But I can feel the adrenaline is something not right here. And so I said to um, my colleague, I said, just take record his details in the car. So I get the uh, driver's details and I always remember it. She went to the ops room, oh dear, you codate, which means you confidential. So my heart was going a little bit. I just knew I shut the van doors. I said, won't be a minute. I said, yes, go ahead. And she said, he's wanted for a murder of, I won't say the name. Of this girl up in the West Midlands, and I'm like, my heart is pounding. So, you know, and, and that that was part of the job. I used to love it. I've arrested. Um, so let's just go back to that a second. Yeah.
0: So you you got them locked in your van, was it? I put
1: the driver in my
0: van. To the split, driver was in your van. And was he the one who was wanted? He
1: was the one who want, who was
0: wanted. So you got him locked in the van. Yeah. Do everyone still in the car? Yeah. What happens next? Well, he wasn't wanted, the other guy. Yeah. We'd
1: done a check on him. He wasn't allowed to drive the car. So obviously I was more concerned about getting this guy who was wanted for a murder yeah. or association with a murder back up to lock him up. And then obviously West Midlands police come down then and um, collect him in the morning, take him back to the West Midlands. The other guy in the car, I obviously he walked off. and um, He walked off. Yeah, so, And the other
0: guy went peacefully. Yeah. so yeah.
1: And, and I, again, that's good policing.
0: Yeah any other hairy moments like that in the early years
1: yeah um there was another one my mate um he was his wife was pregnant we were in a station it was about early afternoon and a call came out there was an armed robbery taking place at the post office so of course everybody leaves the um, station i go out the backyard there's no police vehicles so I said to uh, my mate, who was just leaving early to go to the hospital with his wife to have a scan, I said, "Can you drop me down this area in uh, and Trenchard Drive? It's like a wooded area." And uh, so he done that, and I remember the helicopter was all up. There was um, dog handlers everywhere, and it's local knowledge again. So within about half hour, I see this massive guy coming out of the woods, and I just look at him. He's sweating. Everything. And um, I just went after him, grabbed him by the hand. You could feel the adrenaline. And I just said to him, I'm going you on suspicion of armed uh, um, robbery. And he said, yes, yes, I know. Um, so I, what he'd done, he went into the post office. He had acid, apparently. Oh. And he threatened all the staff to get on the floor and um, all the uh, members of the public. Uh, he ran, but he came up from, I think, Plymouth Way. Yeah. So I don't know whether it was pre-planned or something. His wife went to meet some some relative in Cardiff and I found out he had some money problems and obviously he just planned this. So again, that was local knowledge. I had a police accommodation for that. Um, but again, you, you never know what, what you're going to deal with. It's, um, you know, and I've done all different aspects in a job.
0: So in those early years then were the times when you tried to arrest people and they resisted. Got any stories of those?
1: Yeah. Um, to be honest, down down in sorry down in Roth Police Station, um, it was so volatile. More or less, every arrest you'd have to use force. It was that sort of uh, place.
0: Any memorable ones? you can Give us a story about.
1: Oh, so many. Um, <laughs> I've been on a riot police. Um, I remember when Bristol City come over; they were playing Cardiff City. And we get a call to get out straight away. Um, and I remember um alighting from the uh, police van and it was about three, four Bristol City fans. And I kicked this Cardiff City uh, guy in the face and I seen it. So I chased him up the uh, road. Um, I give him a sweeping leg kick. He went down. Um, as I fall on top of him, I've got the three other guys in who's threatening me. Um, so I had to get my spray out and everything sort of stopped a little bit, but then obviously other units come. So, yeah, there's there's been loads of incidents. Um, there's another incident. There was a lady down in Grangetown when she was in mental health. She went ballistic with a big carving knife. Oh. Her husband was outside. When she did you had, say
0: she went ballistic, what do you mean? Mental
1: health. She she just flipped. She was going to kill anybody.
0: Was she on the streets or was she in the house? She was in the
1: house. She was up in the um the top room and... So I remember getting kitted up again with shields and you've got to go in there as a unit, you're trained. What's the plan in a situation like that? Um, Well, we used to go up to the army place up in Kaiwent and we do uh, PSU uh, police support unit training, bricks, shields and all that. Because at that time as well, we do, I don't know if you recall, when when Wembley Stadium was being built, we'd have all the cup finals down here. So, and we were brilliant, not, not being big We, everything was done, you know, really, really good, but we are always highly trained. And so what we done in that scenario was, um, she's in the room. We can hear her shouting, screaming, banging, and you put the shields together, you move in, and obviously you pin her in a corner, um, Checking, obviously, none of your colleagues are going to get knifed and that. And then, obviously, I remember coming in, grabbing a knife. And then, obviously, uh, she was arrested for 136 mental health and all that. But, um, so you've got
0: to get in fast,
1: yeah, yeah, we, yeah. So, um, and
0: how easy is it to take the knife?
1: Well, it all depends. I, I've been in other situations. I remember another time in Trenchard Drive, this guy he was about six foot six, he was massive, and again. He kicked off, and um, I remember going down there early, I was in the morning, six o'clock, so he hadn't been taking his medication, and uh, he flipped. Uh, that was quite scary, because he's assaulted a lot of people.
0: Did he have any weapons or anything?
1: Not when we went in there, but we don't know. We we know he carries knives and things like that, you know, and that's the thing, you, you never know. So um, we went in and restrained him. How easy was that? Um, that? That situation was it was a couple of minutes longer, but those minutes seemed like, yeah. What was he f- resisting and front? Oh yeah, he's threatening us, kicking us, everything. And you, you can imagine, um, how strong he was. Yeah. So, uh, but obviously we managed to do that. There was another one. She was, because um, we, we used to cover the hospital up in the Heath hospital. I can remember another woman, she was going to chuck herself off. And I had a uh, police accommodation for that. I had to talk her down. Um, she was uh, going to jump off the top of the multi-storey. So I remember coming up. What did you say to her? She said, swearing, get away, et cetera. And uh, I'm trying to calm her down. And then she sort of dangling in over the edge. Oh, my God. So I had to sort of talk her down. I took my, all my um, my radio, uh, not my radio, sorry, my uh, kit off. I said, listen, i only come to talk to you. What do your family members want to speak to, you? et cetera? So I managed to sort of sit by a couple of yards away. How was she reacting at that point? She had this faking look and, you know, uh, my adrenaline's going because I thought she's going to go any minute now. So I remember I said, listen, and I remember she had the mobile phone. I said, listen, my phone's not working. My police spray Joe. I chucked it in the middle of the uh, floor. I said, let me just use your phone so I can contact my sergeant. And she's looking. I said, listen, I said, all I want to do is contact my sergeant. So... She leant over, give me it, and that's when I grabbed her and uh, pulled her off, but, you know, that was quite hairy. What was the relief like at that moment? Um, again, Sean, you, you don't think of it at the time. It's the adrenaline going and after. You think, wow, do, do you know what I mean? But it, it's – and that's why I left the bother job. It was it, it was brilliant. You, you never know what you're going to deal with. You know, you're dealing with a murderer or you could be just going to court, giving a bit of evidence. You could uh, just go to a community meeting. It, I, and it was brilliant. I I I say to uh, my colleague on the way down, yeah, Um I loved the job. It was fantastic, and um it was only when I ended up in licensing that uh, things started to uh, change for me.
0: We'll get to that. Did you sustain any injuries in the first early
1: years? Yeah, he was in uh, riot police. I remember Cardiff City playing Stoke City down at the old Ninian Park. Um I remember Cardiff City fans trying to have a go at um, the uh, Stoke fans. I remember I'm on a brick in my back. Uh, I end up in hospital with that. Oh. I've gone to domestics. I've been butt- head butted in the face. So
0: with the brick in the back. Then could you just set the scene a little bit? There, where, where where were you and what were you trying to do at that moment?
1: It was in the playoffs when Cardiff City had to win, but uh, Stoke won. And so, obviously, they were going up to the Premiership, and I remember the Cardiff. They wouldn't move out. There was thousands. And um, how does that feel when you? have Thousands of them. Um. Is it like Braveheart. No, no. It, it, I I think then I worked with guys and females as well. Sorry that um, we were very very good, organised, well trained. Um, I know a lot of police officers won't like it now. I look at it. Now, especially with the new stadium, they haven't been involved, what we've been involved. I remember the Northern Ireland Police had come down as well and uh, they watch how the uh, South Wales Police, Cardiff, PSU, had uh, deal with things because they couldn't believe we had less officers compared to, say, the Met and how we dealt with all these uh, big events. So on
0: that day then, you got a tight, highly trained unit. Are you in gear, like riot gear? Helmets, everything. And have you got... Protective vests or anything on?
1: Yeah, you got like obviously these shield vest things. Um, They're not that good, really. But um, you'd have uh, your body armor, uh, shields, helmets, gloves. I remember chasing or trying to move the Cardiff fans down there. Of course, behind us there was hundreds more. And uh, I remember another guy. um, Won't say his name. um, He got hit on the head. He was concussed. uh, Brick. Brick. He was uh, concussed. He was down. Um, but my very first game I always remember as a riot police officer was, I think it was 1999 or 2000, it was when Cardiff City were playing Millwall and I was a little bit naive and um, coming out it was a lovely uh, Saturday early morning and all of a sudden on the radio everybody get kicked, kitted up into their number one such a helmet and everything shields. And I remember members of the public help, helping all these officers uh, getting kitted up. And with that, there was thousands uh, of Cardiff fans coming up towards Millwall. And that was battles all day. And um, when I looked after the CCTV, um, they were like ants, Cardiff. They, they were everywhere. And, and a saying went as well. I don't know if you know, with the um, FA Cup final when Leeds United came down to play Cardiff City, um, you know, some of the things down there, which was going on, that that was quite frightening. And um, I remember we had loads of intelligence and elite United fans. We were at the back of Grangetown train station and the intelligence, obviously there was going to be loads of uh, disorder. Um, as soon as they got off the trains, they just charged us. And obviously, because we, we were really highly trained and, all in a straight line. unit. we detained it. Everything, but what went on after it was bedlam.
0: Oh my goodness! Let's go this more slowly. So, there's, did you say there is hundreds or thousands of them?
1: Oh, the thousands, thousands of them. Yeah. How many
0: of you were there?
1: Um, I'd say about five, six hundred police officers. Five, six hundred police. Yeah, thousands
0: of them yeah. charging at you. Yeah.
1: At that moment, what's going through your head? At that moment, I, I think then um,
0: you'll think you're in like a movie, like Braveheart or something. No, no, no.
1: You, you, you do get you, you do get you know. There's some scary moments there. Yeah. You know, with bricks and things like that. You think, oh my god. Do you know what I mean? But I you think just, you just once gotta, you show the weak side, um,
0: you're finished. So You just got to stand tall. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, and do uh, what you're trained to and do. You've
1: you got to protect your colleagues as well. Like I said, um, I had a brick in my back. My colleague. He was knocked unconscious. Down the medics help him.
0: When you see a colleague get knocked down, then does that ratchet the whole situation up?
1: No, you. The medics will come after. They'll drag him away, and you, you're just forming your line, and then being guided then by your sergeant inspector. Hold the line, advance, etc. It's like um, sort of
0: gladiator. Hold yeah. the line. Yeah, but aren't you thinking? You know, one one of our guys is down. It could be me next, something like that. Does it go through your head? Yeah. Have you got no time to think like
1: that? No, no, it's it's like an adrenaline uh, rush. Yeah. And, um, but but we, how can I say, we were good then. We, we, I, I'd say we were probably one of the best trained PSU units in the country at that time. The confidence in that um, helped you. even our uh, inspector, I won't mention his name, who's working in... Um, Um, for UEFA now in Switzerland. He went on to progress because we all respected him and um, even the English FA wanted him to uh, work for him because he sorted a lot of problems out when Wales went to France with the uh, Euros and there was a lot of trouble with the um, English and Russians out there and um, he sort of took control and uh, he's well respected. So um, we, we were good and like you said, you do get, um, you, you know, you, you get some games. You think, oh, this is going to be boring today. It's only so and so coming down, but it, but that's, that's how we were, you, you know. So, so the brick hit you. What happened next? Um, obviously, uh, I stayed up. I could feel great pain into uh, my back. Whereabouts? Um, it was right in the back, lower back, my your there. tailbone. Yeah, and I remember I didn't go straight away, but you fill the uh, forms in the F sixty four Bs. Um, injury on duty, etc. And I remember going to the hospital then and having an x ray and everything. And
0: so did you have to leave that area right away to get treatment?
1: No, I didn't go straight away. Um, obviously, it was at the end of the shift because um, looking back, yeah, possibly I could have, but then you're leaving two men short out of the unit then. So um, obviously, my colleague who got knocked unconscious, he's just out of the game, isn't he? So, um, yeah, yeah.
0: So riot situations, particularly hurry, I feel my adrenaline going already just listening to it. What about like one-on-ones with people with knives, perhaps guns, anything like that?
1: Um again is it adrenaline isn't it? You um I think okay. that's our job. That's what we're trained for. Yeah. And nobody joins the police to think, right, we're going to go in there, we're not going to uh, be involved in any nasty incidents um like i said where i was working in Roth police station there was a lot of nasty incidents uh every day and it was common knowledge with knives and things like that loads of times we'd be stopping people early hours in the morning they got knives on them they could have drugs um you, you know it, 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 that part of policing where i was at that time it was um it didn't phase you really the adrenaline will go when you stop you you know You'd uh, go to, you think, oh, we've got to go to his house now and, you know, warning markers and all that. But, um, and I think then there was more police officers as well. So if you went to a certain premises and you think, oh, this is a little bit griefy, you knew you were having backup. And I think today's policing, and we all know there's not enough policing. Um, I think the clientele who has been employed in the policing, they're not streetwise. Um, and this is a massive problem. They wanted all these college graduates and things like that. Um, and I'll give you another example. Um, I was the acting sergeant up in uh, Lannishan, and there was a female officer, and she came from the prison service. She was brilliant. And she went to a violent domestic with another guy. I won't mention his name. And obviously uh, she came back to the station. She said, Tony, can a word." So I said, yeah. She said, I can't work with him no more. So I looked, I said, what's he done now? So uh, she said, well, we're in there. And now this guy is a college graduate. He would fly past and do an exam past me. And you know, I would probably just scrape through the exam, he would do it. But to do policing work, basic policing, he didn't have a clue. And I remember she said, I was taking the wife's details in the room. He's taking the husband's details and the husband turned around to him and said, oh, the thing is, she's been getting on my nerves the last couple of months. That's why I've been having an affair. So he comes out of the kitchen, goes into uh, the room and says to the wife, you better sort yourself out. He's already told me he's having an affair. He's what? Boom. And this is a college graduate. Do you see what I mean? So you pull a car over and there's a knife in it
0: that they generally just Get arrested, or do they pull the yeah, knife and try? Yeah, and, yeah, pull the knife and try and run off.
1: Um, a lot of them it's have the attitudes, uh, false name, address, things like that. So, um, I, and like I said, it's experienced policing. You you know what's what.
2: We were in the visiting room of Leavenworth Penitentiary, and my dad said to me, "If you're going to be on the street, I want you on the street the right way." In his mind, the right way was to become a member of his life. And he looked at me and asked me a very serious question. He said, son, if you ever had to kill anybody, could you do it? I thought about it for a minute and I said, yeah, dad, if the situation was right, I could do it. I got my own jet plane, my own helicopter. I got a house in Florida, a house in LA, a house in New York. I got literally 300 guys under me ready to do anything I tell them to do.
0: (laughs) What's up, guy? And Mikey Franchise. When they talk about royalty, they talk about organized crime as its own handsome young prince. The youngest person listed on Fortune Magazine's
2: 50 Most Wealthy and Powerful Mob Bosses.
0: A movie being made
2: by the mafia. I end up making this dance movie in South Florida. I was bringing in between 8 and $10 million a week. Now, how I got into that business is another whole story. But that's where I spotted this gorgeous young woman coming out of a hotel pool. Uh, that's where it began. One of 14 people charged in an alleged mafia loan sharking and strong arm operation. Today,
0: a federal judge in New York ordered Francis to jail.
2: My dad disowns me Persico, contract on my life, and Francis, quote, you're a dead man anyway. Francesi has pulled off quite a con job in his deals with the government to get out of prison. You
0: are the youngest, richest mafia don in the United States. It's absolutely
2: untrue. Real, real process trying to, you know, change that mentality, change who I was, it doesn't happen overnight. Michael Franzese has transformed his life from being a powerful mob boss to a motivational speaker, youth empowerment activist, and best-selling author. He is a living testament to the fact people can walk away from their previous wrongdoing and be in control of their destiny. No matter how bad you've been in your life, no matter how lost you have felt, remember this, you can turn your life around, you can transform yourself, you can make a difference. If I could do it, then you can do it too.
0: I'm really excited to be hosting the Michael Francis 2024 UK tour. I was part of it last year and it is mind-blowing, his Mafia stories. Many of you are familiar with Michael because he was portrayed in the movie Goodfellas absolute classic. Now the real deal is his stories about the Colombo crime family being one of the highest earners using the petrol scam, his relations with the Gambinos, stories about Gotti, Hoffa, Marilyn Monroe. It is endless. So come along, check out the show and you can ask him questions at the end as well. The tickets are available, link in the description box. I'm going to run down all of the locations we have the vip launch night in chelmsford essex on friday 15th of march at chelmsford Racecourse. it is going to be a red carpeted extravaganza star-studded launch and there will be a dj dance floor you can party the night away and rub shoulders with famous faces and the ticket includes a two-course meal Then on Saturday, 16th of March, we're going to London in Kingston. Monday, 18th of March, we're at The Globe in Cardiff. Tuesday, 19th of March, we're at KO Media in Bath. Thursday, 21st of March, The Junction in Cambridge. Friday, 22nd of March, Central Hall, Southampton. Sunday, 24th of March, Birmingham, XOYO. Monday, 25th of March, Monastery in Manchester. Tuesday 26th of March, City Hall, Sheffield. Thursday 28th of March, Balmoral, Belfast. Saturday 30th of March, the Helix in Dublin. Monday 1st of April, the Tramshed, Glasgow. Tuesday 2nd of April is the Racecourse in Carlisle. Tuesday 2nd of April, Carlisle Racecourse. Thursday 4th of April, Castle Park, Doncaster. Friday 5th of April is the Flory in Liverpool. And here's what you're going to be getting to see at the show. Michael Francis, the notorious former crime boss, often referred to as the Prince of the Mafia and a real-life goodfella, has announced his new UK live tour, the Michael Francis Remade Man Tour, Born into New York's violent and feared Colombo crime family, during the peak of his career, he was making up to $8 million every week from legal and illegal businesses. He was even named by Fortune magazine as one of the top 50 most powerful and wealthy mafia bosses. He was even named by Fortune magazine as one of the top 50 most powerful and wealthy mafia bosses. This event promises an explosive conversation with myself as the host. It will be a no-holds-barred conversation about Michael's life, including his numerous arrests, jury trials that ultimately led to him pleading guilty to a federal racketeering charge, 10-year prison sentence, and $15 million in restitution. After his time in federal prison, Michael is now on a path of redemption. He is open and honest about his past, eager to share the compelling experiences of his former life. Beginning on Friday the 15th of March, his 15-date UK tour will exclusively feature live on-stage discussions. Together, we will take the audience on a deep dive into the world of organised crime, sharing captivating tales and previously unheard insights into the past, present and future of the Mafia. This is a rare opportunity to ask questions during an interactive Q&A. It's a must-see for true crime enthusiasts and anyone curious about the underworld. For more information about the exclusive in-person event, check out the link in the description box if you're watching this on YouTube, or go over to Eventbrite and put in Michael Francis, and you'll see all the venues and you'll be able to get the tickets. You can also go to gadflyentertainment.com cheers
1: and if they had those weapons in there you you know they're coming in and you take them off the streets well the times Um,
0: when they didn't want to come in
1: well yeah that's that would happen quite a few times down there down road station and
0: any memorable stories of that happening
1: yeah there was um obviously i can't say his name i remember this guy he's wanted he's supposed to be in court like patrolling it was a friday morning um and I always remember it, stop checked him on the uh, bridge and he had a knife in his pocket. He had a vendetta with another guy supposed to be going to his house. So when I found it, then obviously he tried to run. So I grab him and then obviously the uh, fighting starts. Another time, I always remember this was another nasty incident. It was another Friday. I was dropping an officer just before 10 o'clock to the court, which was only down the road from our station. And we're getting calls. Somebody has been um, seriously assaulted with a metal bar down uh, Splat Road. So loads of phone calls are coming in. So you know this is, you know, it's not a false call. So I said to uh, my colleague, Julie, I said, Julie, I said, I'm going to have to divert and go down there. So we went down there. I could see the ambulance are there already, and it was about 20 people around this guy. But I see this uh, Ford Tipper van. And it's just going from the scene and everyone's pointing at this van. So I'm uh, looking at the van. Now I decide, right, well, that's him. He's getting away. So I follow him. He refuses to stop. Eventually pulls in his lay-by. As I get out, I look up. There's a girl in there. She's got blood all over her Mm -hmm. face. And this guy, um, my colleague, she turned around. She identified who he was. And um, she went, oh, no, it's, you know, so I won't say his name um so of course my adrenaline now i think in oh my god you know this is one of the times another time when i thought oh i'm gonna get a, she's seriously assaulted here by this guy so he said to me i'm gonna kill you as he's going to get out of the van so i pushed the door back and i got my spray out and i I sprayed him in the face and i pulled him out then and then obviously He's uh, still trying to attack me. So again, I give a sweeping leg kick. He fell on the floor. Other units are coming in. Um, So he gets arrested. And I remember it was a morning shift, six or two. So when I came in the next morning, this guy, it was horrendous. He, with a metal bar, he took half a year off this uh, student. We didn't know he was just high on drugs. Um, There was loads of... um, videos uh inside his house um there was computer stuff drugs in it, everything and i remember going to crown court about it and um i remember him saying to his sister if i seen that guy over there we assaulted i wouldn't know him and um but yeah that was a nasty incident did he
0: get some Serious time, or was
1: yeah. he...? Yeah, you went to prison a long time. Yeah. Because uh, there was a lot on these videos and everything. You're
0: talking about kids? No. Okay. <laughs> Violence, or...?
1: Well, it was, it was all sorts on there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What was the first murder cases
1: you encountered? Um, again, down Rothweeds. we... As we're uniform officers, we go to a few murders, but, of course... Our main job then at that time was to preserve the scene, um, unless obviously the guy was there, which um, it was only that one uh, when I was up in Lannishen and I was a routine stop check. But a lot of the time you come in, you'd be uh, preserving a scene and everything. So another those go to major crime or the uh, CID. Can you take us through the first murder scene then? Um, The first...
0: Or an early one, if you can't remember the first. Yeah, it,
1: it, it's been it's been a lot where I've just sort of turned up, and you are just um, preserving a scene. That, that that was my involvement, really. Um, I wouldn't say I'd have direct access or whatever, and you'd be there for about you know six hours, eight hours, signing a book, who's coming in, who's coming out, and so uh, I, I think that was at that time that was a lot of the uh, police officer's uh, role then. So preserving a scene, what does that mean? Well, it's, you know, protecting all the uh, evidence, um, forensic, uh, stopping anybody coming in. Even um, if any senior officers wanted to come in, you'd have to, you know, just to uh, cover yourself.
0: Are you sometimes the
1: first at that scene of the dead body? Um I've been to some dead bodies where you've had to call then obviously the CID, they take over to see if it is, you know, suspicious marks and things like that. You can give your uh, report at the time, um, but I no, I, I don't think I've dealt with anything who's actually being murdered there and then I'm like first on the scene. So when you're preserving the
0: scene... Are you also in your head trying to analyse what's happened to that person or is that someone else's?
1: Yeah, no, no, you're you you can uh, you're doing your job and you know what it's like people talk and then you get the neighbours or friends, or you, you know, so you're taking all this information out and then obviously um, you'd uh, record it on a statement and then give it to the major crime or the um, CID officers who's ever dealing with the case. So, you know, you're just there, but obviously you're still gathering evidence yourself.
0: From other ex-cops that we spoke to, these cases tend to be, domestic violence situations are drug-related. Is that, Was that the case for you as well?
1: With us, I think a lot of uh, the deaths, I'd say, where we were working at the time was drug-related. Uh, a lot of suicides, um, you know, uh, it, it was drug-related, a lot of it. And did that start to take a toll on you, encountering these scenes? Um, I don't think at the time, uh, Sean, but I, I think... When you look back, I look back at my career and I'm thinking about all these incidents. um, You know, like I said, I've been assaulted, I've been headbutted, another domestic.
0: What was the story there?
1: Violent domestic, this boy um, or guy, he was well-known. He was about six foot two. He assaulted his um, partner. And I always remember I had a young probationer with me. So obviously he had to arrest this guy and... We went into this cul de sac and the guy was there waiting. And, um, or prior to that, I spoke to the girlfriend's, um, yeah, the girlfriend's mother. And she's slating the police saying, Listen, I'm fed up with the police. They don't do nothing. He was arrested last night doing the same. And, like I said to her, I said, Well, listen, I said, You can't blame the police all the time. I said, I'll go around now. We'll arrest him. I said, Obviously, if there's evidence there, but it's the courts then who let him go. So I remember going down into this cul-de-sac and he sat there staring, vacant luck. You could see, obviously, his eyes a kite. And um, I remember um, going up to him and I thought, well, the probation I can't arrest this guy now. So I went over to him. I said, are oh, you under arrest for assault? Yeah, he's fine. But He had that vacant luck. So I put him in the back of the uh, police car. So as I did, I said to my partner, just sit the other side of him. He's handcuffed. And as I went to grab my case, I always remember he just headbutting me full force in the nose. Oh. And my nose, and you got all the locals coming out laughing. And, do you know what I mean? And that's quite intimidating. And obviously, uh, loads of units turned up as well, so he got further charged and assault police. But um, again, I don't think he got done for a lot. And this is a job a lot of us put ourself into, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, but um remember, I, I thought he broke my nose. My nose was pouring with blood, everything. And then you're thinking then, looking back, you know, why did I put my head sort of, you know? And, and that's just a learning curve again. So, on, um, on
0: that learning curve then, do you have to really attune to people's body language and the kind of energy they're giving off?
1: Yeah, well... Like I said, to me, it's probably my complacent because I was very, very good. Um, I could see people's body language, um, you know, see how they talk and everything. And I've always been very, very good at that. And to me, I think in, well, this guy's handcuffed, he's in a car, shoot me, I'm just taking my briefcase out. And it was my own fault, really.
0: Do you think you were overconfident and there was a lapse there at that point?
1: Um, No, I wouldn't say... I'm overconfident. I, I would say, and a lot of my colleagues would say, I was a confident, well thought of police officer. No, I just
0: mean in that moment when he headbutted you. Do you think you let your guard down?
1: No, because obviously I did. But looking back, the adrenaline's going.
0: Yeah.
1: And you know he's a nasty individual. He was arrested the night before. And you think, like, well, he's handcuffed now and he's in the back of the car and everything's okay. Yeah. So um, obviously he wasn't. So, it, throughout your
0: 30s then, I mean, how long were you in this for? I was down there for, I think, about five, six years. Five, six, how, how, how long was your total career? Uh, i done 18 years. 18. So, throughout your 30s then, are there any really memorable stories that we've missed out before we keep going?
1: Um, I left there, I went up to uh, Lannisham Police Station again, I had the highest arrest rate up there I had good arrests self generated I went into the um community side of policing which was great um I also done a stint uh, traffic attachment um everybody said oh you know that must have been great on traffic to me um yeah it's nice driving a nice b m w or Volvo but what I was finding as well is I was forever getting colds and the flu. And I think it's, you know, where you're driving and you're going through accidents all the time in every bad weather. Um, then you're getting back in a car with the air con and all that. And a lot of time you're working on your own. And I like the uh, camaraderie with the uh, boys and things like that. And when I was on the um, police support unit, the riot police, we had a lot of overtime. So I looked at it as well. Well, I'm on an attachment with the traffic department, but I'm taking less money. So, and I, it, it wasn't for me in the end. So, um, another
0: well, one of the ex cops told us that the worst stuff he ever saw was in traffic. There was a situation where a baby was crying in the back, and they took the, the minute they took the second they took the baby out of the seat, bam, crash. And the baby ended up dead, and he, had to, he was at yeah. the scene. Did you have to attend scenes like that?
1: I've gone to scenes where children have been um, badly injured and conveyed to hospital. I can remember another time there was a guy, he was on a motorbike. It was a nice sunny day. He's on a main road taking a right turn. An old lady's pulling out. The son, obviously, she couldn't see this guy. She just whizzed out of this, took him off the bike. I remember I thought, oh, my God. And uh, I see his bone out of his leg parts and muscles all over the road. And he ended up having I mean, his uh, leg amputated. Oh. Um, and yeah, when you see things with children as well, you think, you know, it's it's terrible. Is that the worst stuff you saw oh, yeah. throughout your career, the stuff with the children? Yeah, with the children. Yeah. Um, not just the uh, accidents, but obviously where they've been physically abused and assaulted. I think that stays with you a lot.
0: And what about... Adults were attracted to kids. Did you ever have to deal with those monsters?
1: Yeah, um, quite a bit. I can recall another time I was called, me and my colleague, we went to this uh, dressing room and it was, um, I can't say the name, there was a guy who sort of chased out of an area in a Subway's area and he hitched up with this other woman. And this woman, she was in work and she had three lovely little girls, and when we did, there was a domestic there with him and a girl, so when we done a check on the uh, the boyfriend, it came obviously all the intelligence came that obviously he'd been a sex offender and everything. And what stuck with me with that was um, we contacted the his girlfriend in work, so we mentioned it to to her, and obviously I got two little, I had two little young girls then at the time as well, so it always sort of hit you a bit. I remember telling her that, you know, this guy, this happened and this is where we are. And her response was that was, well, you haven't been convicted. I'm like, what? So, and, and this is where then, you know, people are too trusting with everyone.
0: You got a duty to protect your yeah.
1: kids? Yeah, Do you know how long she'd known that person? A couple of months. A yeah. couple of months and she yeah. was just that
0: blasé? I
1: remember another time when... do um, fit to be a mother. There was um, a young boy, we were coming on duty and it was a street opposite the uh, police station and he's crying, he's about eight, nine years old. Um, so I said, well, what are you doing out this time? And he's crying. He said, my father kicked me out of the house. Where would you live? Down there. So we walked down there and I, I was asking questions. Where's your mother? She lives in another part of South Wales. So um, she said, he said, um, his dad." who's an Army, uh, retired Army or something, come out of the Army. He's having a party with all his mates. So we knocked the door, you see all the music and lights going on. So uh, the little boy's there crying. I say, is this your son? Yeah. And they both, I said, well, hang on a minute. I said, just you on your own, can you come out? And um, he's effing and blinding and cursing his little boy. So uh, I call for the van and then um, I grab his hand. I said, you're under arrest. So, uh child neglect and that and we end up having a fight so I cuffed him put him in a van again it was nights and we were on double back the next day so I came in and I asked uh, my sergeant I said what's happened with this guy our social services have given a boy back to him and there's a complaint about you for assault and you thinking <sighs> what what am I doing N- nothing came of it but th- that's that's the thing uh Sean that um you know it's always our fault
0: that 's got to be so frustrating when you're putting your life on the line, mm. and anything can happen at any moment mm. so it sounds like you know you got in your intentions were great, you were around thirty years old. by the time you're hitting forty, mm. are you still as enthusiastic or as more reality set in
1: um, no I, I was still proactive then I was still yeah. working on the streets and everything um It was a little bit later then when I thought you know i need to do something different now and um so i thought there was a post coming up in the licensing department in cardiff and cardiff licensing at that time was or still is is one of the busiest licensing areas in whole the uk so um i applied for everything and uh, i got accepted so i went in there in 2008 september
0: and what was that the duties there like
1: um, again, it's like joining the police force again. It was, um, I had to get a degree in licensing laws. Um, you're dealing with door staff. It's a different type of policing. And the thing is, Sean, you're dealing with a lot of drugs. You've got a lot of uh, clubs who's been run by drugs. You're taking their livelihood away. Um, and you had to be spot on. Um, you know, and I remember going in that department because, When I went in, there was a few problems before. There was uh, stories of uh, police officers who were in there before. They were having uh, drinks, meals, things like that. And like I said, I'm squeaky clean and, you know, there's CCTV everywhere. So, you know, being switched on, you cannot, you know, you, you could be a good licensing officer, but you cannot be their best friend and... I, I got bribed quite a few times, you, you know, and I wouldn't take a bean. And um, But when I did start, it took me about six to ten months before I was sort of feeling my feet because there's so much to learn about and it's such an undercover world. Um, police officers, unless you've been in that environment, you would know.
0: So you said they're having drinks and meals. Do you mean with people in the underworld and club owners and things like that?
1: Yeah, there's uh, gang-related. Uh, we used to stop certain DJs coming into Cardiff. Um, we get in, and, and to be honest, we, we were really, really good in it, me and my colleague. We were a small department. Um, and we used to get the intelligence before the Subway's Police Intelligence would get it. And I think there was a little bit of jealousy there. Um, so why would you stop a DJ? Um if we had intelligence, because we would have uh, some coming down from London, and um, we'd link in with, with the Metropolitan Police as well. We say, this guy has run these events and they've had shootings there, or, you, you know. So we would go down and speak to the um, DPS, designated personal supervisor, and we would say, well, we're not happy with this because if it goes ahead, you've already had these instances If this happens, we're going to review your license and this is more ammunition. And nine out of 10, I got to say, when I first went into the uh, licensing, Sean, it was like, oh, another licensed officer. But everybody will tell you I was well-respected in there. Um, I was truthful. I was upfront. I would tell them how it is. Um, I would get new people who say, you know, I'm going to open a new club now. So you say, all right, yeah, what type of music? Oh, we're having soft soul, we're we're not going to have no. I said, listen, you're not having soft soul. I said, you will get issues in you. You might have a glass in or whatever. You might have somebody in you with drugs. It's going to happen because you're in a licensing uh, thing. It's when you start hiding it. I said, then uh, we'll work together. I said, you know, you might have a glass in you or a big punch up. I said, well, I've got to answer my bosses when I go to tasking. So what I used to do, I'd have a lot of, uh licensees or they'd all have my own personal number i even put my personal mobile number on my police card as well and um i'd say if you had something really really bad i don't mean like a drunk who's been escorted or whatever but if it's massive i want to know before i go into work so i can look on the incident and i got the answers for the bosses i said because i don't want to look an idiot i said but obviously if it continued then then we go down that line
0: so what are the worst melees in the clubs
1: it would be the DJs, I think. Who's, the DJs, yeah, the DJs who uh, they bring followings from Bristol, London, whatever, um, and you know we'd have people serious assaults going on, everything. What, um,
0: like people from different regions fighting each other.
1: Yeah, I, I, they just come up. And, what, what would be the motive for the violence? Just people high and drunk, drug drugs. I think. Uh, it was. I remember one premises. It was the old um, Hard Rock Cafe, which somebody bought it when they closed down, and the things going on in there. And I had to close that down. What was going on? Oh, we got DJs in there every weekend. Somebody was getting seriously assaulted. People uh, being searched. You know, with drugs. There was a drug problem in there. Um, there was things like when it was in there, the CCTV, they wouldn't give it to us. That one working, well, that was a condition of their licence. Just loads of breaches of their uh, licence is.
0: So one cop, Neil Woods, he told us, like, if he arrested a burglar, like, burglars would stop, you know, in that area for a little bit. Um, arrested a car thief, the car thieves would stop. But if he arrested a dealer, the violence would increase because people would compete to take over that person's patch and it didn't stop the substances flowing, they'd just be right back out there the next day. Did you find that you were up against like a tidal wave?
1: When I first went in there, Sean, it was it was a big problem. Um, I remember another premises in Westgate Street, and we were looking to um, review the licence down there. And I remember coming in one day, and we were looking at the CCTV because the bosses asked us, and there was loads of uniformed police officers going in downstairs into this premises, and next minute you've seen all the police being chased out. And I always remember, oh, the that, being yeah, out. It, it was nasty. We were getting uh, people knifed in it, all sorts. And I always remember going down there. We had to see the bosses, and who uh, was running a club, so we created an incident for our own safety because we're in there about one, two o'clock in the afternoon having a meeting. And I remember sat down, and the people there who were saying who they were weren't who they were and i knew we were being watched or whatever on cameras and you know that that was a bit that that's one of the hairiest things i've seen and in the end because of the pressure we put on they just give the license up and um and, and it is it's a nasty underworld um big money you know i i can't say too much but a lot of criminals attached to these uh places um it blow your mind away. You think what? You know, and, and that's the pressure you're under, and you know, it's uh, it's uncomfortable. And you've got to be impartial. You know things, and even when the bosses are coming up, which I got so good at my job, the bosses would be coming up and they say, "No, what can we do with this?" And I think, "Well, I'm only a PC. You're a superintendent, chief inspector, and you're asking me." So the responsibilities and all that shown was really really high but i was well respected and um i had a good rapport with all the door staff everything and that never happened before
0: so you mentioned some officers you know having meals out with these people did you ever see the weaponization of women like honey traps like sending women to seduce
1: officers i am seeing that um i've had sort of hints and things like that and um like i said i've been offered bribes and things like that, Sean. And first of all, I wouldn't take it. I'm an honest cop as they come. And secondly, I don't want to be in their pocket because it could be me next next week saying, oh, hang on a minute. Ah, yeah, but you had a free meal or you, do you see what I mean? Yeah. And also there's CCTV everywhere, which is good, I think. I think it's brilliant. And if there's, we, we'd find a lot of places where there was incidents you'd always find the CCTV one working in that place. <laughs> so, you know, and like I say, you speak to all the door staff. It took me about 12 months for the door staff to think, oh, hang on, Tony Roach is a good guy. He's not out here. Because I'd have talks with him, Sean, and I'd say, well, I've worked with bar cops, and I'm saying we're all good. And like you lot in here, I give talks. You know yourself, you're working with good door staff and his bad door staff. And I'm not here to sort of get off the doors and I tell him I couldn't do their job. I couldn't stand on there and deal with drunks for 10, 12 hours. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. But if you do something stupid, especially if it's on camera, well, I've got to... And I had a great rapport with them in the end. They were brilliant. And when I was in that department, violent crime was reduced every single year. And I even had the police accommodation for it as well. Brilliant. How long were you in that department? I was in there, went in 2008. And then... Um, I was dismissed from the force on the 3rd of April 2015, a day after my 50th birthday.
0: So what happened? Why did you leave licensing in the first place? Because I was dismissed from the force. You were dismissed from the force. You were in licensing all the way to the end? Yes. So that was a long time, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. So what other notable stories
1: happened over that period of time before your dismissal? Um, Just premises, you, you know... I'd be taking premises to review and I'd have complaints made against me. I'm picking on the premises. Um, You know, there was, um, there was a female sergeant who her brother was running a premises in a city centre of Cardiff. Um, And I always remember he came in one day, he'd only been open about six months and he wanted uh, an extension of his uh, licensing hours so when he came in, uh, my colleague turned around and said, oh, Tom, can you come in this meeting? I said, what, what for? So he said, oh, well, he wants extra hours. I said, well, just tell him, because we all had different roles and different premises to uh, manage. I said, well, just tell him. I said, oh, Tone, can you come in? So I went in there, what do you want? I want extra hours. And I basically told him, you've got to be joking. You've been open six months. We've had glass, people who's been bottled in there. We've got CCTV where people have uh, jumped on the uh, counter, ripped the till out, fighting, and serious assaults in there, and there's no way. So unbeknown to me, the female sergeant who worked in the Cardiff city centre, she was emailing me. She wanted to see me. So uh, I bumped into her down Cardiff Bay Police Station, and she said, what's this? You turned my uh, brother down for a licence. So I said, "Was your brother? So she explained. I said, you got to be joking. I said, Um, you know, he's lucky he won't have a licence uh, if he don't sort it out. And I always remember her words. She said, um, I thought we could have bent the rules. I'm like, what? So anyway, um, I reported that to my sergeant because you've got to be squeaky clean. So I'm doing undercover work one day when Wales Rugby was playing. It's a major event in the city centre where all the licensed premises in Cardiff City Centre got to use plastic glass vessels. They've got outdoor staff and everything. So I said to um, my colleague who's doing attachment, I said, I want to call in this club. So as we call in the club, um, I see the female sergeant off duty, intoxicated, serving drinks behind the bar. Um, There's no licensee in her. There's drugs in her. Uh, Basically, there's loads of breaches of the uh, licensing conditions. So anyway, um, I told the female sergeant, "When your brother contact me Monday. I explained the situation to my sergeant on the Monday. So my sergeant turned around and said, Well, you've got to put a report in about it. So I said, Well, I'll speak to the sergeant. I no no no, he said, You've got to put so I put a report in. And from that moment on then I found out that this officer got disciplined. She got moved out of Cardiff to an outer station and I'm target number one now. And I didn't know at the time, but all I'll say, Sean, she had a very, very close association with the senior officers. And when I say senior officers, I would say the chief superintendent and the assistant chief constable. Um, and as we're talking oh, they know the names. And um, so I was target number one because of their close association and me doing my work.
0: How did that initially manifest, you being targeted?
1: Well, just before that time, um, we were, there was only, we we had a female officer who was on restricted duties since I joined in 2008. So the only full-time officers covering all Cardiff and the outskirts was a civilian officer, myself, who was a police officer, and my police sergeant. My police sergeant was always away because he was always doing meetings for the bosses in Cardiff. Cardiff Central so a lot of the work was being left to me and like I said violent crime was reduced every single year with me in that job and uh, I was totally respected but obviously because of that report I put in um we'll go on to it but I was under investigation then they wanted to get me for something and this is where all the corruption comes in um I was um under investigation, COVIDly, for 18 months. And at the end of that, um, I went into work, always remember it this time. I went into work, done my work on a computer. I'm going to a meeting. As I'm coming out of a meeting, the police professional standards, the PSD, are waiting for me and they arrest me. And I'm just, not only was I suffering with stress and everything in work at that time, I'm like, what? I am stunned and um, I, I could have dropped on the floor. So I said to him, again, what, what have you arrested me for? Misconduct in public office and income tax fraud. So I'm what? what? So I got to tell you, prior to this, um, we had a small car sales business. It was all legit. Um, it were, A business interest went in. Um, it was my wife's business, although I was active in it. She had her own accountant, all her tax affairs was in order, everything. So I'm thinking, well, why the tax thing? First of all, it's nothing to do with the police. The misconduct, I couldn't get my head around what, what the misconduct was. What, what have I done wrong? So I was taken to a police station up the valleys. As I'm going up there, I can hear on the PSD officers, they've arrested my wife. I'm thinking, what's going on here? So I remember going in now, Sean, and um, as I'm going in there, the I'm just away with the fairies. I can remember it now, and uh, they're saying all uh, misconduct, public office. But I'm thinking, well, I want to know what? Where, where's the evidence? Well, what have I been arrested for? And the only thing I could gather was income tax fraud. But I'm thinking, well, all our tax affairs in order, and you haven't proved any evidence. So what they'd done with me, they stuck me in a room at the bottom uh, where the cells were and I was down there. I couldn't eat. I felt physically sick. Uh, I thought I was going to pass out. And I remember then the um, the Federation appointed me a solicitor. So he turned up. Um, I was arrested about 20 past 12, just after midday. He turned up about five, six o'clock. So you can imagine all the stress I'm under and what's going on and thinking my wife's been arrested And he came into me then. He had consultation with the professional standards officers. So what they told him, this solicitor thought I was a guilty man. You could see, because he came in, he said, right, I've had consultation. I want to go through some things with you. And, um, so as he's going through then, and I'm answering every single question, he said, so I could see then, hang on, this officer has done nothing wrong. All this is made up. So, I get interviewed then about um, my time keeping in work, um, about me going, playing football, leaving half hour early to play football for the force um, and a car sales business as well. So again, they had nothing to charge me. So I was, um, I get bailed to attend then the police station, again at Tom Pentra in March along with my wife, she's been bailed. So I asked my wife about what did they ask her, you know, why was she arrested for? They said, well, income tax fraud, but they never asked me anything. They were asking questions about you. I said, well, have they proved any evidence about income tax fraud because we knew everything was uh, legit and all in order? No. So then, of course, I know well. And I end up going to the uh, force doctor and everything. And I'm away with fairies. So I'm on uh, medication a lot. So I get interviewed again. And um, as I go in there now, the, the officer who arrested me, he was acting inspector, he's got a HMRC investigator with him now. So we sit down, he's got all his papers. So he starts asking me questions. I'm answering all of them. So... Then it's my wife's turn to go in to be questioned by him and this HMRC investigator. So, and my wife, she's pretty switched on. She said, Tony, she said, this investigator from HMRC, I don't think he knew what he was on about. She said, because I had to tell him and everything. So we're thinking, hang on, something's (coughs) not right here. So then we get bail then to attend the police station again in June, my wife, she gets uh, NFA, you don't have to come back, you know, we've got nothing against you. So I go in there now, my health is really deteriorating, I'm like, um, you know, weight loss, everything. And um, I go into that police pace interview, and I'm in there, and I'm pressurised. I wasn't fit to be interviewed, Sean, to be honest, and um, even a false doctor, he put comments in the way I've been treated and investigated and then he's put, I've been overworked, everything in there. So I break down an in interview and she said, um, are you all right? I said, no, my head shot. I said, I just want to get out of you. I, you know, I don't know where I am and, you know, whatever. So um, they insist they want to stop the interview. I said, no, I just want to get out of you. Whatever, you, you know, just get over with. They stop the interview. So they breach pace. They don't get me um, examined by a false doctor or any doctor to see if I'm fit for an interview, which I know I wasn't now looking back. I uh, come out of there and obviously I bailed to attend another date because, again, they had nothing. So I think it was around about September then, August, September, my federation rep, she says that uh, there's no criminal charges to be brought against you. And I think, oh, that's great. Well, I know I haven't done anything. She said, however, you've got to go to a gross misconduct hearing. I said, well, what for? What have I done? She said, oh, well, you'll have the papers soon and all that. So when the papers come through, it said, um, I left work early to buy a car. No. They said, uh, you left work half hour early to go and play football for the force. No. You, um, your pocket notebook was three days out of date. Well, all my work was diary based. And that's not gross misconduct. So I said about my diary. Where is it? That's gone missing. They said um, you. We believe the business was yours, not your wife's. Well, we proved even on paper it was my wife's. You've interviewed everything. So um, and they said that uh, you didn't submit the business interest, and I had. And luckily, I had a photocopy of it. So anyway, prior to me going to my gross misconduct. I'm asking Southways Police now for my mitigation of evidence. And I can provide emails where the pre- police professional standards, who's supposed to be, you know, shift out anti corruption and everything, Sean. My solicitor's asking for this mitigation, like my time cards, uh, my phone records, all proof I'm working, and um, statements and that. And I've got it on email. You tell us why you want it for and we'll decide if you have it. So then my solicitor be putting pressure on who are paid by the Federation. um, Listen, um, we've only got a week to go. We still haven't had this. We've got to get our case. Just ignored it. They didn't provide me any mitigation. So what happened then, I'm told the weekend before my misconduct, on a late Friday, one of the panel members... The superintendent has pulled out. He's not sitting on my panel. But he's going to be chaired by this other superintendent. So I go into this. uh, I always remember it, uh, Sean. I turn it up. I was ill. I just didn't want to go through those doors. And uh, I remember my solicitor saying, Tony, we've got to get in there to clear your name and get the uh, evidence. It was a kangaroo court. I go up there. um, Stuff what I requested weren't given to me. People I asked to give evidence weren't allowed. Um, I end up getting dismissed from these minor things. So my police federation rep, and I always remember at the time of my misconduct hearing, she came up to me uh, one of the days, she said to my solicitor myself, she said, oh, if you want me, I'll be in a PSD office, professional standards office, having a coffee with them. I'm like, my stomach just churned. I thought, you what? You're supposed to be representing me. You've told me you don't even know where their offices are. So I'm stunned now. So I get sacked. And um, she come up to me. She said, Tony, I've got to follow you home now. So I said, what for? I've got to get all your uniform and everything. She said, uh, I said, Please have a bit of uh, sympathy for me. I said, my wife's going to be upset. Can I give it to you Monday? Oh, no, it covers yourself. So I was treated like, a, you know, really, really, like I was nothing. So I remember following me home and I remember, shall I just crash my car? And, you know, things were going through mm-hmm. my head. Mm-hmm. And I told her then, do not come on my drive. I'll put it in a box and I'll bring it out. I, I was just gone. And then from that moment on then, my mental health then obviously uh, deteriorated further um, and I tried to um, commit suicide. Um, There was, um, I was going to jump off a bridge, a railway bridge. um, And then I ended up um, in a crisis mental health um, I was heavily uh, sedated and everything. I couldn't gather w- w- what had gone on and w- why. And everybody I was speaking to, they were saying, you've upset somebody. And um, I was thinking, well, oh, what have I done? I've done my job the best I can. I haven't done anything wrong. These things you sacked me for are not, had you given me my mitigation of evidence, I would have been, um, everything would have been uh, quashed. So my solicitor turned on then and said that um, you've got to put an appeal in. But of course, my head's gone. So he helps me submit an appeal against my dismissal. And I put it, obviously, I was suffering stress and everything, which was all documented before the arrest as well. So obviously with me um, under the crisis mental health, I'm just away with the fairies. Uh, I don't know what's going on. Um, I remember taxis picking me up, taking me up to the mental health office, uh, hospital, sorry. Um, I don't know where I was. And then I get a letter then in September from the chair of the Police Appeals Tribunal. And in his report, I'm reading it, and it's just stating a pack of lies what Saltway's Police have told this chairperson. And it, he says at the end, you've got no chance of any appeal. So I think, well, I haven't put my case forward. So I ask the Saltways Police Crime Commissioner, who I'll go on in a minute, who's heavily involved in this, Sean. I ask him. I said, "Can you provide me all the documentation? Because I haven't had an appeal. I've put my appeal in, and all I've had is no. You know, I was waiting for a date to attend. I've had no appeal, and I want all the mitigation of evidence you've given to the board." So I can look at it and see, you know, what you've put in, because it's all wrong reading this report. So I get back from um, the Southwest Police Commissioner's Office. No, you're not having any of the um, evidence we've submitted to the chair. And so I asked them a reason why. They said it's, um, what was it? I can't think of the word now. Anyway, you're not having it. So I'm thinking, what? So, of course, a lot of ex-senior officers, they know my case, uh, Sean and I'm well thought of, so they're disgusted. So they put me in touch with a couple of um, good officers who's retired and i got to say, if it weren't for them, um, I don't know where I'd be now. They've been helping me to get justice all this time. So as it transpires then, later that year, we find, find out that... The assistant chief constable who sat and chaired my misconduct panel, along with the superintendent, is only involved in my investigation. He's also got the assistant chief constable, an association, I'll say, with his female sergeant. So this is where everything sort of like a jigsaw is coming together. And I'm thinking, I can't believe this. So I email, I've got emails to this, uh, ACC and I'm asking him about his position with the professional standards department, because he is head at that time of the professional standards department. So he ignores a lot of my emails. He won't answer. I, I send emails into the chief constables. They won't answer, um, I send it then to the Data Protection Office in South Police and I get a response and it says that the ACC has nothing to answer to. So you can imagine now, Sean, you know, I root out corruption and I've been honest throughout and I'm like thinking, hang on a minute, I've been targeted here. So I go on their website and I've got this Assistant Chief Constable who's pictured and head of the professional standards department who's investigated me he's head of that department the superintendent was also head of the uh, surveillance so this is going on now for a number of years now and i'm trying to get answers i am trying to get uh, an appeal so i informed my uh, federation and my federation just abandoned me and so then the guy who's head of the federation at the time, I said, listen, I've got all this evidence that my misconduct hearing, not only was it unlawful, the investigation, but the hearing itself is, um, it's unlawful. And anybody sitting on a panel of a police, under the police regulations, sitting on a panel, I give them the uh, regulations, they cannot be sitting on that or chairing that panel if they've been involved in investigation, and the Federation have abandoned me. Now, I've been in touch with other officers who's had the same uh, been dismissed as well for something minor. And this Assistant Chief Constable was sitting on their panel and he was also involved in investigation. He's head of the investigation. So, as we move on now, my Federation, they won't fund me. I'm sending all the evidence. Um And I know why. They don't want to expose Southways Police for another miscarriage of justice. But worse than that, Sean, this is going on now. This is bordering on these senior officers, including the Crime Commissioner, who's um, refused me a lawful appeal. He did write back to me and said, under the um, circumstances, uh, under the provisions, you cannot have a second appeal. So I written back to him, I said, well, first of all, can you give me the legislation It says I can't have a second appeal? Two, can you tell me where did I have my first appeal? I've never had one. And you've never given me the evidence you've submitted to the chair, won't answer it, you're not having one. So that's where we are with that, which I'll come on about him, the crime commissioner. So what happened then... um, Prior to all this going on, I, I'm trying to uh, go to the Employment Tribunal. So I've had to sell my car. I've got no funding. So I go to an Employment Tribunal and I always remember the judge. He was fantastic. And he said, right, he said, this is this, put all the things in place. Saltway's <laughs> police wanted to adjourn it. They said, we haven't got our evidence. And again, they didn't give me evidence. So uh, for my case, so I agreed to adjourn it so I can get it all. So when it came to another date, there was a different judge. And the judge turned round. I explained I still haven't been provided with my evidence. I've told them these two senior officers were involved in my investigation. And then I sat and chaired my uh, panel, which is unlawful. So she said, oh, you're too late. You should have brought it within three months. I said, well, I couldn't bring in three months because one, I was ill Two, Subway's police wouldn't give me my mitigation of evidence. And three, it's Subway's police who took me all the time, not me. So that was that. So, anyway, I get um, a no win, no fee solicitor now. And um, I give him all the details. And he was fantastic, this solicitor. And every, t- every time I was giving him stuff, he said, Tony, this is TV media stuff here. He said, I can't believe. So um, I said, no. So um, he's asking disclosure now from South Wales Police. And I remember I get this package now and um, I'm reading it now out my back garden and I just started heaving, being sick. And I'm looking at it and It it wasn't a five, six month operation. This operation would be going for 18 months, the taxpayer's money. And I estimated to be around about two million plus of taxpayers' money. So obviously they wanted something for their money. Oh my God, I can't believe what I'm hearing. It's like this is like some of a Kafka novel. So I, I write to the crime commissioner. I said, can you give me an estimated value? It was called Operation Kansas. So he turned around, he said 60,000. So he said, no, that's not true. I wrote back to him, can you give me the true figure? At the time, I thought it was about one and a half million, but I, I speak to a lot of people. They said two million plus. I said, there was another case in 2008. Salt Lake Police done a COVID operation on him. It was about five, six months. And they admitted in 2008, they spent, they wouldn't give the true figure. They admitted it was around about half a million pound they spent. So they've been investigating me for 18 months and also, I find out it wasn't just Southwest Police who was uh, following me covertly, it was uh, Gwent Police and Dovey Powers Police. So they've been following me for 18 months. I'm looking further, then, shown at the uh, paperwork. I find out they've been in my house, burgled my house without a warrant. What? Um, I've got stuff where they said. This is where he keeps all, um, this is where his wife keeps her money um, in his cupboard in the bedroom. Um, now, the only way, uh, and she's got a door, a corridor door, which is locked into the bedroom. Well, who's got a long corridor, which then goes into another door into the bedroom? So that's evidence I can prove they've been in my house. Um, then I look at the, um, they got a warrant later on to get all the car sale invoices. So I look at the warrant, they've committed perjury to the judge, saying that uh, I'm guilty of income tax fraud, which we hadn't. So uh, they've lied to the court judge. So then um, I'm looking at uh, some of these incidents, intelligence reports, and I can see now where they've got two well-known, one Cardiff criminal and one from Newport in police entrapments with me. I've been subject to being threatened. Um, I was coming out of a meeting. I was threatened by this one guy who's a known criminal, and I know now he's an informant. He's threatened me with violence. It was a midday in a pub. And my colleague was there with me, and there was all tarrying and undercover officers in that pub. And I can remember, looking back now, I can remember seeing certain faces in there. Why are they in the, this pub? But obviously, it all tied in what did he say to you he said that um, he made false allegations I was taking cash envelopes and no no evidence whatsoever he's in his statement he puts that uh, I was in a meeting with another door staff company and I've seen him passing envelopes well <sighs> so if that was the case why weren't I arrested at the time and uh, and this guy is a constant fabricating liar and I've proved it. And um, so when I start look, so I've been threatened with them. Um, I've been threatened with um, other other uh, heavies coming to get me. And um, even on Texas I've reported that to the police. No, I don't see any threats in that. Um, and the guy who did make the threats a um, couple of months before, he was found guilty of doing the same to somebody else with phone taxes but they didn't want to know. Um, I've... So when I'm looking then Sean, it's all a disclosure. The police have given my solicitor. Like I said, I felt physically sick. So they put in there that um, I was taking cash envelopes. So that was proved wrong. So they were doing this to get the surveillance, the Ripper Authority. So they've lied to get Ripper Authority to follow me, everything... Every month, this ripper authority, had change. They'd lie, South Wales Police. They put. I was the next month, then I was accused of giving um, certain things from the computer to the criminals. No, I wasn't, and that that was disputed. The following month, then I was a drug dealer. Um, I've never taken drugs. I've taken paracetamol if that counts. Um, I've always been really healthy and everything, and. Then they said the following month, I was emptying all the drug safes in Cardiff and I was supplying all the door staff. Well, I made inquiries about this after and the guy said who was in charge of that, the drug safes, there was only one key for every drug safe in Cardiff. And that was kept at Cardiff Central Police Station, not Cardiff Bay where I worked. I couldn't even tell you where the key was. And that used to be the, um I think it was the community officers used to go around once a week or once every other week, empty them and get them destroyed, but we didn't get involved. So I know the professional standards departments made contact with the sergeant in charge of that uh, community officers who took, he wanted to know um, what's the um, circumstances, uh, the profile, how they release the drugs. So they had all that, but they still said that... Um, You know, when I I didn't have access to any drugs, you know, so there was that. Then I was, um, I committed income tax fraud. Well, I never, that was all, do you know what I mean? Everything was squeaky clean with that, no offences. Then they said they were going out and asking licensees, because that all came back to me, did Tony ever ask for free drinks or meals and things like that? And of course, all this, uh, Sean, was going on through the investigation because they wanted me for something. And... So uh, you can imagine all these allegations, so they've lied through Ripper to get authority. They've intercepted my phone for lies, my landline and my um, mobile phone. They've uh, emptied my hu- um, entered my house without a warrant. Then they've got warrants later on. I think it was a couple of days before uh, they arrested me to get the invoices and search my house looking for anything and anything. And they lied, committed perjury to the court judges for that. So anyway, I've turned around and um, obviously with the help of uh, ex-officers and all that, we've tried to put a case forward and um, especially with the assistant chief constable who then gets promoted to deputy chief constable. Then he's retired then a couple of years ago and the crime commissioner supports his senior officer for the Queen's Medal for his services <sighs> So I think, well, you've supported this senior officer who's perverted the course of justice, and you know about it? So I get a letter from the commissioner when I did make a complaint about this senior officer, and he wrote to me, and he said, the ACC, the Assistant Chief Constable, was specially selected for your gross misconduct hearing by the professional standards. Their boss have specially chosen him and he hasn't been involved at all in your investigation. That's why he was chosen. So I've sent him documents, what I've had from my solicitor, all disclosure, and you've got the chief constable's name, other senior officer's name. Where it's come come from, the authorisation, it's got the assistant chief constable's name, but they've redacted his name. They haven't redacted other names. They put everyone's number, even the uh, chief constable at the time, but they've redacted that. So I've tried to go to county court, and again, um, I didn't get anyway because um, they said, like, obviously it's too long or something, and no, you can't have it. I've contacted the um, information commissioner's office about getting certain data. Uh, they still won't uh, allow me. It's like all these government things are in place. So then I uh, make a complaint. Um, oh, and also in the disclosure, which knocked me for six, I find out that the commissioners have met one of these known criminals in Panath Police Station. So he's involved as well in investigation. So this is why you won't give me an appeal against my dismissal. So you've got all these senior officers involved and the chief constables know about it. I've uh, emailed them and spoke to them. I've asked them for meetings, everything. They will not meet me. So I make um, complaints then to the, um, it was the IPCC then at the time. And the head of the IPCC, I won't mention her name, she writes back and says, no, we monitored your investigation from start to finish and we're happy with the investigation. So we've written back, Sean. We said, Well, are you happy then that they've committed serious uh, criminal offences, perverting the course of justice, tampered with evidence and everything? And they won't answer it. So th- the IPCC then changed over to the IOPC. So the head of the IOPC, I've written to them, I've given them the evidence, everything. They will not meet me, they will not see me. Now, there's a recent case, like I said, South Police have got the most miscarriages of justice. You've got the Cardiff Three, the Lynette White, which is the Lynette White. It's the most taxpayers' money uh, ever for a miscarriage of justice in the UK. You've got the Darvell Brothers. You've got the Cluddock Murders. Um, do, do
0: you want to go over those cases now or does that come later? Yeah,
1: we, we'll come later with that. Okay. So, you know, I've spelled this out to the IOPC. And um I've asked them can you meet me you know I'm a, I'm a serving police officer at the time I'm honest and everything and I've got crucial evidence to support what I'm saying they will not come near me they uh they said no what you must do is give it to Saltways police so they can investigate themselves I said well <laughs> they're the ones who's committed it yeah exactly <laughs> they're the ones who, who've committed these serious offences mm-hmm. So I've been, this has been going on, um, Sean. So, so being, when I've tried to ask for certain, like my phone records, the information commissioner have told Southwaite Police, and I've got it all there. You've got to give him his phone records and redacted. They still haven't done it because they know that would be proof of me working and everything and they'd have to pay me more money out of hours. I'd done more work or whatever. Regarding me leaving early for five-side football or leaving work early to go and buy a car, they produced a dummy job description, which didn't apply to me. When I asked for my proper job description, which said you will, your role is a flexible role. You do loads of unsociable hours and everything. My sergeant agreed chief inspector, inspector, superintendent. They all agreed, all agreed that my work was perfect. I would do a lot of split shifts because I had to deal with door staff in the evening. You can't get them in a day and it suited me. So I asked them for my time card, which is electronic. If you come through that door, you buzz it, and even tell you what door you're coming in, Sean. And do you know what they said? We lost it. My job description, they said the one I signed, which was a flexible role and everything in 2008, they said that don't exist. So an ex-officer in 2018, who lives in a different area of South Wales police, he knows the plight of my story. He said, don't worry, Tone, I'll apply for it. They give it to him within two, three weeks. My proper job description. Um, the thing where they said that uh, they believe the business was my wife's, not mine. After they reported us to the HMRC and um, they'd done a thorough investigation. There was no penalties, no nothing. So going back to the HMRC then, we also import, inform the IOPC that this HMRC investigator who named himself... Greg Jones, was not a HMRC investigator. It it appears now he was an undercover police officer, which that's a criminal offence purporting to be a government official. So um, we've we've contacted the head of the uh, HMRC. I've gone through um, the uh, offices and everything, and they've said that um, they haven't got a Greg Jones working for us. Um, I did trace one Greg Jones who was working in Stafford and Manchester. So I contacted him. He said, no, I've never been an investigator. All I do deal with is media stuff. So I've asked the police, Southwest Police, can you give me the contact details of this uh, Greg Jones who's purporting to be a HMRC investigator? And they said, no, ask HMRC. HMRC said, no, you ask Saltways Police, it's their investigation. I've also requested the notes he made in a police pace interview, which are disclosable. They will not give them to me. So as this have been progressing and me trying to uh, get justice, I'm in contact and uh, I find out with somebody that uh, I get a copy of my, um, what was it, transcript of my police pace interviews. And I can prove now there's extracts meeting from there. So I've asked them for it and um, they said, no, no, that's what it is. So I've asked, I want to see, examine a copy of my Police Pace interview, CD tape interview, unopened. It's taken me years. So they finally uh, agree for me to go down Swansea Police Station, miles away where I live. So I go down there with somebody because obviously you can imagine, you know, with all these people following me and everything, I don't trust them. The last thing I want to do is go in a police station on my own. So I'm down there. This female inspector comes out with another officer, and they start filming me and saying that uh, they're going to assist me. And they're professional standards officers. They shouldn't be involved in it anyway. So she said, you're not coming in with him. I went, hang on a minute. I said, I'm not going in there on my own. Oh, you're refusing. No, I'm not refusing. (laughs) So this is going on. Yeah, yeah, come on, he's refused. So they walk away and slam the door. They will not let me see my PACE um, recorded interviews because they know they've tampered with that. I've asked for the CCTV in that foyer of that police station. They will not give me that. And the police officer who had the body cam on it. So he could that would evidence her being obstructive, refusing me access again um, because they know they've uh, committed serious offences. The same officer, my wife's made a complaint to her for the false arrest. So she said, well, can you send me the information? So she was given, all you need to do is look at her custody record. And it says the DP defendant has been arrested because she has, not reasonable suspicion, she has submitted inflated invoices to avoid tax avoidance. Well, first of all, that's a HMRC investigation, not the police. So, like I said earlier, Sean, she was interviewed. They never asked her anything to do with her tax affairs. But she just bailed her till March, when we had that undercover officer purporting to be a HMRC who knew nothing about taxes. And since then, obviously, she gets NFA'd, no further action. So then we've asked Southwest Police... Can you provide the evidence where, or the invoices where my wife has submitted these inflated invoices because it's a false arrest, imprisonment? They won't answer it. So the girl, the acting inspector she was in um, the PSD, professional standards, she just said, no, I've uh, shut the case and that's the end of it. And it's terrible, but... um, This is what we've been through, Sean. And, um, you know, I went to a police medical appeals board on the 24th of July last year to get my Injury on Duty Award. Again, the federation will not help me, assist me. um, And I feel deeply let down. They won't help me for an appeal against my lawful um, appeal. Um, They know exactly what's going on, but they are covering for the police senior south west police senior bosses and the police crime commissioner so i've made serious uh, complaints to the iopc now what caused me i don't know if you know but a lot of uh, your viewers would have seen the program in an avon in somerset to catch a copper and i look at the police professional standards Unit, the anti-corruption unit who investigates police officers Who's investigating South Wales Police PSD officers who've committed serious criminal offences? The IOPC know about it. They've known about it for years. They will not arrest... Um, I won't say his name. They will not arrest the crime commissioner um, because they know it will expose serious uh, criminal offences, corruption within his force. They. Uh, it will also um, mean... Which I can prove the three chief constables knew about it and, and has conspired with them the assistant chief constable and the uh, superintendent. I've got statements from ex very senior officers to say this, um, and anti terrorist officers to say this uh, assistant chief constable who was involved in my investigation and he sat and chaired my misconduct panel was definitely head of the professional standards department. I've got another ex-officer who's asked from the Data Protection Office the um, profile of this assistant chief constable with these dates, and they've given it to him. And then when he's made a complaint, they said, oh, no, our computers were down. And it's just lie after lie after lie. And the IOPC, um, they need to look at themselves. They need to be reviewed because... I look at this programme with the uh, Avon and Somerset Police and a couple of them, complaints have been made and within less than six months, these people have been arrested and dealt with, whatever. The Crime Commission has committed serious criminal allegations. He's been involved in my investigation. He's refused me a lawful appeal. He's perverted the course of justice but not allowing and given in my mitigation of evidence. I've never had a first appeal but also with new evidence... Surely I'm entitled to uh, a fresh appeal, but he knows it's going to really cause serious damage to his force and our confidence is so low with always police already, um, Sean. And this is another miscarriage of justice, um, you know, which Gull has been the head of and um, it's just all covered up with the um, IOPC. Let me just go over a few things then. So, you put almost 20
0: years of your life into this job. Yeah, which I loved. You, as an honest person, reported the female sergeant, and then all this chain of events happened. Yeah. You're 100% convinced it's because of that report. There couldn't have been anything else.
1: Yes, because I looked at the, uh, when I put the uh, report in in May 2012 and the investigation, Operation Kansas, started June 2012.
0: Would you say then that, you know, when we hear about police corruption in the media, often it's a a bad apple, you know, it's, it's a minority of police that do this, it's acceptable, it's human nature, we can't weed them all out. From what you're saying... It seems that it's thoroughly corrupt, the whole system. There's good guys,
1: but the bad guys are running the show. Exactly. And the problem you've got, Sean, and I've got to say this, I've written to the two home secretaries. Um, They haven't replied. I've written to the home office. The home office turn around and say, oh, no, you've got to report it to the IOPC. You go to the IOPC They say, oh, no, you've got to go to your force, Southwest Police, Professional Standards Department, to conduct an investigation. They won't do that because they know, how can they investigate themselves? Because they're the ones who's committed all this serious corruption. So if you're not happy with that, you go to the IOPC. And that's where we are still with the IOPC. They've done nothing. So I'm trying to think of... It's a merry-go-round.
0: I'm trying to think of their incentives to suppress this. Do they include they don't want to be embarrassed to the public? They don't want to spend, be held to account for spending all that money for nothing? Yeah. And the corrupt are protecting the corrupt
1: because if it does come out, the whole apple's rotten. Yeah, and, and why shouldn't it come out? You, you know, don't get me wrong, Sean. If, if I've done something wrong, criminally, I'll put my hands up. And I've been honest. Uh, my record itself, I, I've been fantastic. Um Yeah, I've seen uh, some officers and I think, well, yeah, you know, quite rightly, you shouldn't have done this or whatever. But when you've got a whole department, an anti-corruption unit, who's supposed to be fishing out corruption within their force, and yet they're the ones who's committing more more corruption within and allowed to get away with it, the Home Office, the Home Secretary, the IOPC are condoning it because they don't want to go near it. And I think I mentioned to uh, prior to coming in Operation Midland. Um, my circumstances with all these false, false allegations and everything, um, I think it was Harvey Proctor, the MP, because he had a bit of money um, that was dealt with. And like I said, the Federation have abandoned me. They will not, and it's not just me, there's other officers around the country. And as we speak, Sean, I know there's a massive um, petition going round. Uh, for an independent review of the police federation um i've even got um letters where the head of the federation at that time um wrote to the um solicitor to assess if i had a case and what he done he slandered my name he said "Tony, um it is alleged not he has it is alleged he has been associating with criminal the criminal fraternity well i am been associating with them Saltways police professional standards have they've been using criminals in entrapments and everything trying to get a result on me and um, and i can prove that and like i said this have got to be out there because i i want to try and get a public inquiry into Saltways police the professional standards um people's livelihoods careers and, you know, they good name and they think they can sort of pull anybody in, use unlawful uh, tactics and commit serious criminal offences to try and get rid of somebody. Now, don't get me wrong, if this operation took 18 months, surely they would have had something criminal on me. And this is included in entrapments and everything, which they failed. Are these people connected to the Freemasons? I would say yes um definitely um i think you know i can't prove it but um i'm informed by quite a few and this is what i mean when i've gone to court i'm convinced every time i've tried to go to court i think the freemasons have got a massive impact on the result of going in now the same again uh, sean when i i went on to i gotta tell you when i went to my police medical appeals board um Again, I had to sell my car to fund it. The Federation would not fund me. And, um, you know, I'm still suffering mental health, uh, PTSD. You know, loads of times I think I'm still being followed um, or I get angry in certain situations. Um, So I've gone there and I've asked for evidence for my case. I've had to um, get money and sell my car to fund for me to get a solicitor to represent me. The chair... Of the uh, police medical appeals board, this doctor, you've got three doctors on it, but you've got the main chair. He was told weeks before and a week before, Southways Police have not given me my mitigation of evidence. Um, he told them on the day as well. So the chair wasn't um, bothered. He said, Well, that's to do with Southways Police, but surely any other judge, if you go to court and you say, Well, the police won't give me my mitigation of evidence they'll either adjourn it or they award it in that person's case. So while I was there then, my wife was sat behind me and the two solicitors were out of the room and my wife was uh, recorded what the chair said. He turned around to me and he said, is that right, you said the employment tribunal judge was corrupt. I said, what? They said, you said the employment tribunal judge was corrupt. I went, no, I never. I said, I'll tell you the uh, judge's name, which I did. I can remember it. So I told him the name. I said, he was fantastic. I said, Saltways Police wanted an adjournment. I said, and we adjourned it. And then we had a female judge. And when I went there, I put my case forward. I told him, obviously, the Assistant Chief Constable Superintendent were in charge of investigation, sitting chair in a panel. Saltways Police refused to give me my uh, evidence, which is still due today. And she said, uh, sorry, you're out of time. We kicked it out. I said, and I do believe the contacts with the crime commissioner and all these um, other people, it's, you know, how can people get justice?
0: It's all incestuous. So working for almost two decades then, you must have really bonded with some of your colleagues who are honest and are still in the force. How
1: do they come to terms with what's happened to you they, when this happened to me uh sean everybody was paranoid they just didn't trust them um they thought
0: it was going to be them next
1: yeah and uh, they couldn't believe the length um i'll even say when i was in work and i haven't said this before um i was sent home when i was suffering with stress in work my head went and the inspector told me to go home and um so this sergeant, not the inspector, sorry, the sergeant in the office told me to go home. And I said, no, I'd just come back from two weeks on a sick with stress because my head had gone. And I came back in and I didn't know, there was all members, other staff members. And I told the sergeant when he came in, Tony's not right, it's not me. He, he don't know where he is. So the sergeant came over to me, he looked at me, he said, Tony, he said, I want you to go home. And I'm like on a computer, I said, I can't, I got too much work. He said, no, Tony, he said, you're not a well person," he said. "I'm telling you to go home." I said, "I can't." I said, "You know, I go." He said, "I am ordering you now to go home." So I went home and um, didn't go to the doctors because I knew, thinking, "I've got to get back in and uh, work." So um, when I um, when I had to go to the gross misconduct, this was part of my mitigation. So I said about this sergeant who was um, who sent me home. I want a report of him. So I know the professional standards phoned this sergeant up and yet they said, we want to report off you because Tony have said this. So this sergeant done the report in 10 minutes and sent it through. So somebody was in a close position with the sergeant, knew exactly. So next minute, minutes after he sent the uh, statement, the phone goes. So the sergeant picked the phone up. And he heard the sergeant say, no, I'm not changing as, that statement. That's what's happened. So, again, the, the professional standards are trying to pervert the course of justice, even with that. And, um, you know, I've got so much evidence of corruption, Sean, and um, you just can't make it up. So all these officers, even when this happened to me, I my head went, and it meant a lot to me because I've always played five-side football, Play football for the force, but I've always played every week. And and I just stopped everything. And, like, even inspectors were there. They said, tell Tony to come to football. We know he's done nothing wrong. But what it's done for everyone else, they are so paranoid how the professional standards have worked. They're not trustworthy. Who pleases the professional standards? And they're all rooting for me to get justice. And, you know, they're all standing by me. And I can help hold my head up high because... You know, it was like the Assistant Chief Constable, six months after I finished, he puts an additional three officers in that department. Six months later, he's gone to the press and he said the licensing department in Cardiff can't cope with all the work. It's the busiest in the UK per square mile and they can't cope. Well, I was like another knife in my heart where I've been overworked. And on top of that, he's put additional staff in it as well. And I know the other two... They've gone long-term sick and retired or just had loads of sick or they've said, I can't do. They've gone in other departments. So for him to say that was like another knife in my stomach.
0: So earlier you mentioned that the Home Office just
1: fobbed you off. Does the corruption go all the way to the Home Office? Well, I I think the Home Office... um, I I don't know, Sean, whether this is related to the police pensions as well. It seems familiar that... um, All these officers on the old pension, a good pension, they wanted everyone on this new pension, which is rubbish. And I believe it's sack as many as you can. We'll protect you and uh, save the uh, Home Office money. So Now, now if they wanted to do that, sorry, Sean, i got to say, if they wanted to do that, well, surely you should be sacking all these officers and a crime commissioner. That's a massive Money you're gonna save with your budget. So they've saved
0: a lot of money on your pension by getting rid of you. Yeah. How much do you estimate they've saved?
1: Oh, well, it'd be it'd be a lot, a uh, lot. yeah, a lot.
0: So there's a financial incentive as well, yeah. Here.
1: But that it seems like it's run from the Home Office, they're happy to dismiss for anyone and anyone, save the uh the pot and um but this is what I'm saying. Well, I've been subject of a miscarriage of justice. I've been stitched up, lied to, fitted up and dismissed. And yet you've got the professional standards office, senior officers as well. Well, if I showed any solicitor who'd willing to take this on, surely all these would be dismissed. And they would with the evidence I've got. And the crime commissioner. Do you know what I mean? That's going to save the force and the taxpayer loads of money. But they wasted around about 2 million plus on me, so they needed something.
0: So I chatted to you on the phone. There's some absolutely mind-blowing cases that I wasn't aware of, and I went. you told me to go and Google them. Yeah. And you've got a unique insight into these cases, and we were mm. going to discuss them as well. So Murder in the Valleys, what, what happened there?
1: Well, I would say anyone to look at that programme, Murder in the Valleys, and it is, it's on Netflix. It's uh It's shocking and obviously I've got to be careful. I, I know there's a couple of books out about it, but I've spoke to a couple of people. I was gobsmacked when I looked at that programme, and a lot of officers who were serving then, good officers, they said, yeah, I've seen it, and this guy didn't do it. Whose murder is it about? It's about a three-generation family, um, two young girls, the mother and a nana. And, um, so who
0: gets murdered?
1: The four of them. The four of them? Yeah. That's what I mean, Sean. You, you've got to look at it. You, you look at the evidence on there, and do you know what I mean? And, you know, police not looking at certain evidence, um, things like that, exactly in mine.
0: Were they murdered at the same time? or were they, Yeah. They were all murdered at one location in at the house, same time? In a house, in a house. At a house. And who were the immediate suspects?
1: Um... I think at the time it was two serving police officers. and Two serving police officers were the immediate suspects? Yeah, that's what I mean. I think a lot of people should look at the programme and make their own views. And did South Police investigate it properly? Who ended up going to prison for it? Um, another guy died, Morris, and he died in prison. And the family were trying to get um, it overturned, uh, but he died in prison. So there was no justice
0: for him? No. And the possible perpetrators remains got free
1: well they seem they were exonerated weren't they they were exonerated but that's why i mean you look at the program and you you know i think all your viewers they need to look at that did they go
0: back to work then after they were exonerated no no
1: no but but the the program and the book i'm in touch with the guy who wrote the book i believe he's He's got another book coming out about it as well because he's so passionate about it. Always investigated the flaws and everything else. Yeah. And so you've got that miscarriage of justice. Of course, you've got the Lynette White. So who was Lynette White? She was um, a young girl, a prostitute, who was uh, stabbed in a flat in Cardiff Bay. Um, there was uh, three guys who went to prison. Massive miscarriage of justice. Um They've done many years in there, but as a result, then of DNA and it being reopened, um, they got released, and of course that's a, affected them. Or they've been, you, you know. And I could see, uh, you know, how they uh, feel. Um, so this was a national bit of news. So of course they caught the guy who'd done it via DNA, and also they would investigate the officers then who put these three officers away. Um, and then more shocking then, the evidence goes missing. So so the evidence against these officers went missing. So it gets kicked out of court again. <laughs> and then um, the evidence gets found again in, a, wa- in a warehouse uh, down in uh, the area of Cardiff.
0: So let me get this clear then. So three men are framed.
1: Mm. How long did they serve? Oh, a good number of years,
0: decades.
1: Yeah, Did I think you, I think two of them now have passed away.
0: Do you recall what evidence they used to put them away in the first place? Was it like witness? Was it testimonies that were falsely procured or something? It was.
1: Um, they had uh, some informants who she had uh, issues, and um, it seemed as though she was pressurized to give a statement and everything. And but what evidence was there? I I don't know. So. They got, Again, they wanted a result, didn't they? They wanted
0: a result. What is the incentive to have a result without having the correct perpetrator? Is it just to satisfy the public? We're, we're doing our job, we've got the Possibly, bad guys. Possibly, yeah.
1: yeah. Possibly. Or they just targeted these and thought, you know, we've got to get a result.
0: Or is it, is it sometimes the case that if the three men are villains anyway, they're getting the just desserts for other things we haven't been able to get them for? Is that? Does that play a role? It could in be,
1: Sean. Sure. I, I don't know, but uh, yeah. if you look at it, you see what they were locked up for and everything else, and you think, "No, do you know what I mean?" Uh, again, it's shocking how these people were interviewed. Um, it, it's horrendous. If anybody looks at that as well, Delannet White, our Saltways police, uh, and some of these officers are working in the uh, Professor Standards team now as well.
0: That doesn't surprise me. I'm speaking yeah. to you. Yeah. So when the evidence was refound in the warehouse,
1: what impact did that have, if any? Um, it's not a public interest, I believe. <laughs> and it's the, it's the dearest miscarriage of justice in the whole of UK. Lynette is? Yeah.
0: Dearest. Yeah. So millions were spent it, on but it. But these
1: are all, you know, you, you look at them, uh, Sean, these are all recent ones. Yeah. You had the uh, other ones with the Saunders murderer. There was uh, three guys here, the Cardiff three. They were arrested. What was what was that case? Then um, a news agent, Phil Saunders, was murdered, and um, so they just targeted these three guys, and uh, they were locked up for years. Hadn't done it, and the evidence came out, and how they were fitted up. How were they fitted up? Just, I think pressurised lies and everything else, and um, you know, I'm a firm believer. You don't arrest anybody unless you get the evidence. Yep. Um, you look at the PSD with me, there was no evidence. It was all allegations. So I pre- presume they were still doing it then, or they've done it before and they're continuously doing it. Allegations, well, you can't have allegations. You, you've you got to have the evidence. And it's is what I said about my wife. Where's these inflated invoices? Where's the invoices for me, what I've done? Where's the evidence of uh, gross misconduct I've done? Nothing. So if
0: any of these guys are watching who were incarcerated and were exonerated on these cases and you want to tell your story, please get in touch. Um, my email's at my website, com. Any other cases
1: like You've got the Darvel brothers down in Swandy. What happened there? There was a girl in a, it was a sex shop. She was murdered. And the Darvel brothers, uh, they were suspects. And um, She was murdered in the shop? Yeah.
0: She run it, did she? Or she was working yeah, in it? Yeah,
1: she, she was working in
0: yeah. And and she got murdered in the yeah. shop. And then they get these brothers.
1: Yeah, and they go to prison for a long time. And the same thing, just yeah. false witnesses. That's right. Um, you've also got, there's a recent one now, um, and this coincides now, how the system works. I won't en- mention his name. There was a boy from Aberdeer, and he drowned a couple of years ago in some river up in uh, Aberdeer. So the mother, whatever, presumed he was pushed in. So, um, and I say, no, 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 and all this. The police uh, form an investigation. No, 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 nothing to answer for. So she takes it then to um, the IOPC. No, 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 uh, everything's fine. We're happy with the investigation. So then he went to the high courts and um, a well-known QC took it there and obviously it was overturned. So again, it shows if you've got money or whatever, you can uh, fight the police. But like I said, the police don't care because it's public taxpayer's money. They don't care and this is what they are uh, try and do with everything. Um So
0: in all these high profile cases then where people were exonerated, were was
1: anyone held at fault for that? Well this this what I mean. Nobody. No.
0: Not a single penalty no. of any kind on anyone. Not
1: as far as I know, no, nothing.
0: So if there's no consequences for procuring false witness statements, hmm.
1: There's nothing to stop it from continuing to happen. I've got a statement, Sean. The guy, the criminal who said I was taking cash envelopes. In that statement, he um, he hasn't put the location, the time, he hasn't signed it. The professional standards officers who are supposed to be experienced will not countersign that because they know they're conspiring to pervert the course of justice because they knew it was all, all um, you know, false. So even perjury doesn't apply in these cases. Exactly. And, um, you know, how can people make complaints to South Wales Police now when you've got the professional standards team who's guilty of serious corruption in my case? Not just mine. I, I speak to a lot of others' minds. And I'm sure I can put you in touch with other people who's willing to come forward now how uh, South Wales Police have acted and are still acting and are getting away because they're protected by the Southways Police Crime Panel who, who's in charge for the uh, Crime Commissioner because my complaint was so serious they can't deal with it. Um, you got the Home Office. No, 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 we won't do nothing. Go to the IOPC, IOPC to Southways Police PSD to investigate themselves. It, it's like me nicking the car over there and saying, all oh, right, I'll investigate myself and I'll sit on a panel. No, you're not guilty. It's corrupt. And when I watch this programme to catch a copper, it gores me to thinking, well, you know, I'm not saying uh, Bristol, Avon and Somerset, but you look at southways Police, the offences they've committed, not just in my case, um, is massive. They've, they'll do anything to conceal, delay and tamper with evidence and ignore and, um, you know, they won't even come to my house. They will not come to my house to see the evidence I've got.
0: What kind of a world do we live in when the anti-corruption police are compromised? <laughs> so there's a part of the story I'm a bit more curious about, and that's your wife, what she went through.
1: Oh, it's horrendous.
0: Are you okay to talk about how you guys met and what she was working as when this all happened, or is that too personal?
1: No, she was... Um she was, um, she's worked in home base. Um, she's worked in, uh, uh, you know, nursing homes and that. Um, we were very, very friendly with, um, a lady. She was, um, this was one of the other things. She was a multimillionaire and my wife used to walk her dog <laughs> and, um, you know, she was so friendly. She was very generous with presents and things like that. So, um, you know, it's nothing for her to uh, buy us things and all like that. And I think it was a jealousy thing as well with the police, um, you know.
0: And how did you meet your wife?
1: Um, I met uh, in a pub in many the years ago, <laughs> the same pub which I closed up. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. So we, we, we've we been together um, nearly 40-odd years now, two girls. And, you know, what, what they put her through and... She's disgusted. She's never, ever been in trouble with the police. She's always Lord abiding lovely person. And she's always said to me when I went in that department, you do not take any bribes, no nothing. And um, not I would, but um, how they treated her and how they can arrest. And this is the other thing. She got arrested because I was a police officer. I worked on Cardiff Bay Police Station and um, so I had to be taken to another station out, out of Cardiff area because it's a restricted incident. What they done with her was take it down to my own police station. And uh, it's supposed to be restricted. Um, and like I said, there was no evidence whatsoever. So it was a false arrest. And again, Southwest Police, they will not address it. Everyone knows about it? I will be writing to him again after this. So before
0: the corruption thing started with you was your wife and your kids were they concerned for your safety like because you do put your life on the line so much over the years did you have have to have conversations and reassure them things like that
1: yeah you you tried to make them street wise. and um my one daughter when this happened she was in university down falmouth fine art it affected her a little bit um when i was arrested my daughter was in the shower or the bath and she said, the police just kicked the door in. come out. And uh, she what? said, yeah, uh, what, what's going on? And um, she said, oh, your parents been arrested. And obviously, you know, she was uh, quite young. And she thinking, what? And she asked my daughter, she said, has your father got any drugs in the house or large amounts of money? And she said, my mother, uh, my father don't do drugs. And so, yeah, it's it's had an impact on her. And... I will say as well, that daughter. She was like a receptionist in a hotel, and it did affect her. And she was coming home one night, and she's not a drinker, and she was afraid to phone me to come and pick her up because of the state I'd been in. And I always remember then um, the traffic officers uh, phoned me up and said your daughter's been involved in a um, serious car accident, no. and she she had a drink. Obviously, she was going through it as well, and she. she She don't drink that much and uh, she ended up smashing a car and nearly died. And this is all to do with this. So the impact is had. And my other daughter, she cannot stand the police now. She don't trust them, Um, you know, especially with this Sarah Everard thing as well. Um, She just don't feel safe with any police. So before the
0: NFAs came in and you're losing weight and you were going through it psychologically, Mm. That must have been really taking a toll on your wife and daughters.
1: Oh, it was, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it, it was terrible. And um, t- to me now, Sean, I, I think it's like a blur. Um, How long did that period go on for? Was it a couple, couple of years? A Couple of years. Yeah, I, I still suffer now. Um, if I go anywhere, and I think somebody's tall behind me, and you know, I can turn around and think I've been followed, or I've had altercations with people if they're staring at me. Um you know, you, you imagine when you read that and you've got three forces following you.
0: And the uncertainty of not knowing how it's going to be resolved, that must have been really Yeah. Yeah. The worst part of it psychologically.
1: Yeah. Well, if I could get justice, I could probably move on with my life. Mm. But it's um I think they've spent all this money and I believe the police are still trying to get something on me because they know like I said, I was threatened. I give them all the taxes. Oh, I can't see no threats in that.
0: So you still feel as if they're trying to get something on you so then they can say, look, we were right about him. Exactly, yeah. So that's never going to end for you?
1: No, it's it's continuing. And um, like I said, Sean, if I've done something wrong, I'll put my hands up. And um, I've been excellent in that job. And those police officers in a professional standards need to look at themselves and that crime commissioner. Why are you still there? I don't know. Yeah. And like you said about the Masons, is he protected? Or But you look at his circle, a lot of it is all Labour. You've got the Police Crime Commissioner, the Subways Police Crime Panel, sorry, uh, ex-Labour members or ex-police officers. You've got, um, it's all Labour down the Welsh Senate. And so who who can you contact? So by coming here and telling your story today, what do you hope to achieve? I want to um, expose them. Um, I'm trying to get action against them because they cannot continue to do this, Sean. Um, There's innocent and there's some good police officers out there as well. But not just police officers, um, I think members of the public as well. If they make a complaint about the police, well, it should be dealt with properly. Not people who's committed and guilty of serious corruption investigating them. And like I said, it galls me watching our programme to catch a copper. And i think thinking, well, who's policing um, PSD and South Wales Police? You know, why won't they um, have a meeting with me? Why won't the Chief Constable, I was a good officer, well-respected, why won't you come to see me, you know, face on face? Um, the Federation, I'm disgusted with them as well, uh, Sean. Um, not just me, there's people all around this country. They've taken all our money off us. I've paid 18 years, you know, money for a union to support me, and they've just ditched me after. And all they can say, oh, no, uh, we're not going to help you, it's disgusting. And, you know, like I said at my uh, Police Medical Appeals Board, I can prove the chair in there was in contact with Southwest Police um, because stuff he was bringing out, that wasn't disclosed to us. So, again, it, it's all in to save the government money the uh, police injury on duty pensions, officers are not getting their rewards for what they've been through. And you see um, you see, the Home Office and this government it really needs to look at himself.
0: So for the people who've been watching this podcast then for the last two plus hours, probably heartbroken hearing the things, but enjoying your lovely Welsh accent. Is there any way those people can help you out there watching this? Can they contact you? Can we put any links out for them?
1: Yeah, I can uh, give you my, um, if the link goes out, or my email, if anybody wants to uh, help. Um, the evidence I have got is crucial, shocking, damning, and like I said, it's not made up. Everything I'm telling you, I can um, you know show you. And that's what I mean as a pro police officer. I want justice, not just for myself. And like I said, I think I speak to a lot of people, members of the public as well, who's come across, so always police, professional standards department and why are they getting justice for their cases just shut down because they know the system you're going to merry-go-round and they know at the end of the day you're going to get what they want and um, they got no course to fall back on or nobody to police them and uh, yeah so
0: so tony's email will be in the description box below the video if you want to reach out and um, on a different note we're coming to Cardiff actually in March. We're bringing Michael Francis, ex mafia capo, who's portrayed <laughs> in that movie Goodfellas. Yeah. So I'd like to, if you want to come along as my guest, I'd yeah, like that's to. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. I can arrange that for you. Yeah. When is it? It's going to be a fun night. The Cardiff one is, um, oh, I can I remember now? It's late in March. I'd have to check my calendar for yeah. that. Uh, we all sort that out much. for you. It's yeah. so uh, every night you get to meet someone out of Goodfellas. <laughs>
1: yeah. I like the film. It's brilliant. Yeah,
0: yeah. I'll put that link down there as well if um, anyone in the Cardiff area wants to come and join us. It's uh, quite a compelling movie. So, huge thank you for watching this. Let us know in the comments what you think. Like I said, Tony's email's down there if you want to reach out. Huge thank you for Tony for coming in and sharing this story. And we wish you all the best of it, man. Yeah, thank Thank, you. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. If you're looking for a gift, my new book, Sit Downs with Gangsters, is available worldwide on Amazon. We've interviewed over a 1,000 people now, and we selected 10 of the hardest-hitting stories to go in this book. Each chapter features the story of one of our podcast guests, those stories are Shane Taylor, Knife Maniac's Redemption, John Elite, Mafia hitman for the Gambino crime family, Joey Barnett, 35 years in UK prison, Ian Blink MacDonald, £6 million bank robber, Chet Sandu, Asian smuggler in Spanish Supermax, John Lawson, the hit team commander, David Macmillan, international smugglers, Thai death row prison escape, John Abbott, San Quentin prison shootout and escape, Michael Francis, Colombo crime family capo portrayed in Goodfellas, and Wildman, English enforcer in Arizona prison. Link in description box on YouTube, available worldwide on Amazon. Also, my next book, Untouchable Jimmy Savile, is getting published in December 2023. So check that out as well. It will be available worldwide on Amazon. Thank you for listening. Cheers.